Hi, everyone. As we are oftentimes required to do at the start of our podcast, we unfortunately must do another in memoriam to honor some folks who have sadly passed away recently who made an impact in the world of anime and manga. The first of these we'll talk about is Manabu Ohashi, who passed away at the age of 73 in early February, and he was a legendary classic animator for Toei from all the way back in the 60s when he got his career at the start of age 15, and when he was only 15 years old. He started working on the Shona Ninja Kaze no Fujimoto anime, and over his career, over the course of nearly 60 years, he drew for countless other animes, and his most well-known work, the work that most people recognize him for, is his you know, directorial work on the Cloud short film as part of Robot Carnival, which really is a standout piece on that incredible collection of short films in that anthology. But yeah, I mean, he worked not just for Toei, but Tatsunoko and Mushi. He was one of the founders uh, among the animators who founded Madhouse in the 70s. And he had been doing work all the way up until the last couple of years. So it's really sad to lose a veteran of talent like himself. And it is definitely sad. Like he made a lot of really beautiful pieces of animation, like the Cobra opening, the second Sailor Moon ending, a lot of pieces of animation that I really liked and now know to attribute to him and his work. And you can just peruse Asaka Kaboru to see a lot of the amazing animation he did over the decades of his career. So it's sad to lose, again, one of the most talented animators in history who touched so many different works and worked for so many different studios and really made an impact. And sadly, we also must pay our respects to a voice actor who passed away recently at a very young age. Kirk Bailey passed away just at the end of the month at the age of 59 after having been diagnosed with lung cancer six months prior. And, you know, the roles that best left an impact on me was definitely Knives and Trigun, an incredible performance, Shin and Bebop, Tetsuya and Fushigi, Garma and the Gundam trilogy. And yeah, like he played a lot of really great characters, but in particular, his role as Knives in Trigun was one that stuck out to me and really helped characterize Knives as like one of my favorite villains in anime. And so I was really sad to hear that he passed away. And if you're a fan of older classic Nickelodeon stuff, he was actually a character in the Salutes Your Sword series, Kevin. So, you know, he was a talented actor and voice actor. He did a lot of work over his careers, a lot of very memorable roles. And it is sad to see that he has passed away at such a young age, honestly, 59, which is really, really sad. And I'm really sad to lose both Ohashi and Bailey and thought we'd just take some time at the beginning of the show to pay our respects to them, send our best wishes to their friends, family, and loved one, and just offer a moment of silence in remembrance of them.
This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 192. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha. And today we are once again hosting another news episode covering all the recent news that has come out in the world of manga and anime in the past month or so. And boy howdy, there sure was a lot of it in February. Yep. Not just new serialization news, but a lot of licenses, a lot of stuff happening in the industry, a lot of stuff happening with anime and live action adaptations. And so we are going to be talking about as much of it as possible today. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of like North American manga sale news as well that we're definitely going to be going over. Mm-hmm. There's just, I say it every time, but there's just way too much to talk about, but you know what, it's fine because I'm very excited to talk about pretty much all of it. But uh, before we even get on to some of that, uh, we have two new patrons we have to shout out, a, a whole two of them. Um, first off, I will be shouting out uh, one of our newest patrons with Corito Prime, who uh, signed up just recently, along with a uh, good friend of the podcast, Patrick at The Comic Fiend. You may have uh, listened to him on the podcast before. I think when we uh, did our big like manga plus sort of like uh, spotlight, like back in the day, uh, hopefully you will be able to hear him on the podcast again soon to talk about a certain tokusatsu manga, possibly. That should be in the works. That should be coming out eventually. But uh, until then, uh, thank you, both of you guys, for uh, signing up for our Patreon. It really means the world to us. Uh, and we, we appreciate anyone who signs up for our Patreon again at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, by the way, uh, where basically if you sign up for even as low as a dollar, uh, we will shout you out on the podcast basically the next time we have to record a podcast after you sign up. And yeah, you know, again, just as low as a dollar and uh, we'll, we'll express our eternal thanks. And so, yeah, once again, thank you guys so much for signing up. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I was really kind of uh, Patrick to sign over to Patreon, like, right, you know, towards the end of our recording when we were just talking about our Patreon stuff. It was, it was really nice of him. And I hope he enjoys, like, our stuff. And it was really nice of Carito to become a Patreon. I know Carito from the Weekly Manga Recap fan community, interacted with them a couple times. It's nice to know that they're listening to the show and they want to support our work. I really appreciate it. So thank you guys so much. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Uh, once again, if you want a shout out on our show in particular, along with uh, all the other like bonus podcasts that you can listen to on our Patreon, uh, again, that's patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Please sign up if you want to support the show. It's really the best way for you guys to do that, especially considering a certain things that I've been um, dealing with technically on my end. But we'll, we'll, we'll bring that up on another show, I'm sure. But yeah, that's just a lot of stuff kind of going on behind the scenes, but we'll talk about that probably next time. Uh, so uh, until then, uh, we're just going to get right into the news because like we mentioned at the top of the show, we have a lot to talk about. It'll probably be another long podcast. So let's just get right into it. Um, I'm going to start off with the newest New York Times bestselling graphic books and manga list for March 2022. And there's a lot of manga on this list. I want to say probably the most manga that's been on this list since it came back, at least as far as I can remember anyway. And we're going to start at the bottom here as far as the manga goes. At number 11 on the list with Chainsaw Man Volume 2. I believe there are a couple other volumes of Chainsaw Man on the list, along with Volume 1 at number 8 and uh, Volume 9 at number 4. So at least three volumes of Chainsaw Man on the list. Not not the most Chainsaw Man we've seen on any of these lists, but we'll get to that soon. Chainsaw Man doing very, very well. 
Uh, and then, I guess, next up at number 10 on the list, we have Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba Stories of Water and Flame, uh, the sort of guiding collection of stories featuring Rengoku and, uh, and Giyu. You know, that's obviously been doing very well, along with Volume 1, ranking at number 9 of the original series, which is pretty cool. And then, uh, I believe, last up, we have Jujutsu Kaisen Volume 14 at number 5 on the list. Uh, the only volume of Jujutsu Kaisen on this list, but again, is uh, is still doing very well. It's very high up on the list. Again, right under Volume Nine of Chainsaw Man, and yeah, uh, again, it's uh, it's nice to see you know more than a few manga titles on this list again, competing with all the other graphic novels that are also very popular and also sell very well. Yeah, I mean, it takes up two thirds of the New York Times list, you know, manga mm-hmm. this month, so. That is quite the domination that we're not necessarily used to seeing on the New York Times list. Usually the book scan, we've become used to being dominated by manga. But now we're seeing, yeah, a lot of manga is populating the New York Times list as well. Very competitive with the bestsellers in the North American comics field. Oh, for sure. Um, Not necessarily manga related, but I I do just want to shout out the fact that both volumes of Mouse are on this list. And um, considering uh, what people are trying to do to try to ban that book, it it does my heart good to, to see that so many people went out to buy those in particular. Yeah, it's very good to see that these attempts to ban Mouse has just incurred sales of it. So hopefully it had the opposite effect and more people are actually reading it now than ever, which is good. For sure. I definitely need to buy my own copies at some point here soon. I definitely want to support that any way I can. But yeah, uh, I think that's about it for this New York Times list in particular. I don't know if there's anything else we want to say unless we just want to move on to multiple ICV2 lists we have to talk about. So at the time of this recording, the book scan list for February hasn't popped up yet. I'm sure we'll talk about it probably on our next episode. But in the meantime, we have a lot of like year end sales to talk about. And I think we're going to start off with the top manga franchises from fall 2021. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and start from the bottom up. At number 10, we have Chainsaw Man, uh, which is pretty cool. I think we'll probably talk about it later, but we also have a lot of like interviews with different like publishers kind of like talking about like the last year's worth of sales in manga. And, um, you know, the placement for Chainsaw Man is really interesting considering Kevin Harmick from uh, Viz Media has said that Chainsaw Man is like their fourth best selling title, like overall, which is pretty cool. Yeah, which is interesting because on this list, if you go by this list, it's like the fifth best selling. But I think if you count like the overall 2021, then maybe if you average it out with the spring list, it, it does average to four. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, we have uh, Toilet Bound Hanako-kun at number nine. Toilet Bound Hanako-kun is, uh, you know, the, the one Yen Press title that we constantly see on, on these lists. So I would have been very surprised if it wasn't at least in the top 10 franchises, you know? Yeah, I mean, it is a really great breakout hit for Yen. That is competitive with the other big shonen hits from Wiz primarily. So mm-hmm. it's great to see Yen have a title like that and see Toilet Bound Hanako is just really, really popular, doing really, really well. That's really cool. For sure. Number eight is a title that I feel like we don't see like a lot, a lot, but is usually on the list every once in a while when there's a new volume is Jojo's Bizarre Adventure at number eight. I know the few times we've seen Golden Win on the list. I'm assuming it, it obviously it does very well. So, you know, again, not on the list as much, but again, still does well enough to warrant being among the top 10 franchises. P- people love Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Not sure if you could tell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's consistently popular, even if we don't see the series populate like the top 20 on the book scan that frequently outside when the new volumes come out. 
Mm-hmm. One title that definitely has been frequently uh, frequenting the list uh, recently is Jujutsu Kaisen at number seven. Like Jujutsu Kaisen, among some of the other titles we're going to talk about, you just you just can't get away from. Like it's just it's everywhere. It feels like. But uh, at number six, we have uh, basically Junji Ito in general. The, all of his works just kind of categorized into one category. Uh, and yeah, again, not too surprising. Junji Ito is basically the king of horror over here. Uh, in the states and in North America in general, still still waiting for the day where like other horror titles could be just as competitive, but we're probably like a long ways off from that uh, for right now. Yeah, Junji Ito is just in a class of his own. You know, it'd be great to see Umez or others up there, but Junji Ito just as a brand, as a recognizable name, has become well recognized, well beloved in the comics community as large. Yeah. So that's really encouraged why he sells so well. It's just that people have finally clumped onto his reputation as like one of the preeminent horror masters in comics. And so now there's all this anticipation for his new books. Like he just has that credibility. He has the prestige behind him that the other authors have not been able to build up a reputation, which is really a credit to the marketing that Viz and other publishers have done to push each of his books in recent years to make him just so recognizable. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, I mean, I- I've said it before, but once you have your own like line of merch at Hot Topic, I think you've hit it big, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah. It was also just nice to see Ito on the list as like the one non shonen action series like selection of titles on the list, you know? Like everything else is like an action manga, like, you know, mostly shonen. Like there's some that are tiny, but basically not that big a difference. But like Junji Ito, it's like a horror comics. So I appreciate seeing that representation on the list mm-hmm, for sure next up at number five we have my hero academia which uh i feel like any other year would be a lot higher on the list but uh you know we, we talked about this on the show i think on our last news episode about how it really feels like the stock of like my hero academia volumes a lot of earlier volumes seem to be sort of out of stock at the moment uh which i'm sure contributes to the fact that like it is as low on the list as, as it is also the fact that you know, Viz is kind of slowing down on the releases and everything, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure also having a lot of those like spinoffs available also really helps the place too. It is interesting. MHA was number one last year. So ah, okay. It has had a drop. Interesting. Junji Ito was also number two last year. So we're seeing a little bit of shakeup in these rankings. Mm. See, I'm, I'm glad you pulled that up because I definitely didn't remember. Um, uh, next up at number four, we have Berserk, which. I mean, obviously, over the past year, I think people have been really eating it up, uh, you know, with the untimely death of a Kentaro Miura, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think that is a big reason why, like, a lot of people are very interested in Berserk now, because they've seen so many outlets, like, talk about it, and it's, like, legacy and importance to not just comics, but a lot of dark fantasy media in general. So I'm, I'm sure that sparked a lot of people's interest. Definitely. Interestingly, it's actually a spot lower than last year, but... I do think Berserk sales have been buoyed and propelled by Miura's passing and posthumous interest in the work from seeing, yeah, like every outlet basically praise him and the series. So I think we have seen an influx of new readers and that has like surely made sales as strong as they've ever been. Mm-hmm. At number three, we have Attack on Titan, which Attack on Titan not only has the manga ended recently, but, you know, the final season of the anime is airing at this moment. So again, I'm sure both of those things have really driven up, you know, more interest than we've had in a while. I mean, Attack on Titan, you know, it's always been popular. 
as as we talked about again on our last news episode, it is the most in demand television show of 2021. So uh, I'm I not that surprised that the manga is also doing very well. Yeah, I mean, this is a jump for Titan compared to last year from a few spots, but you know, it's always been one of the best sellers. But especially as it's come to an end, you know, there are people who want to catch up on the series and catch up on buying the volumes to reach the ending, to read the ending. And the final volume came out at a good spot last year, like pretty much towards the end of the year in October. So yeah, it had a pretty strong release schedule last year in terms of volumes. So I think that also helped its sales along. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's still a lot of buzz with the series. I'm sure that it Titan will continue to sell pretty well this year as like the second half of the final season continues to air. Potentially... They might even make more anime. I don't know if this final season with the episodes it has can cover everything, but yeah, we'll see. I think Titan, of course, will continue to be an evergreen seller. <sighs> Attack on Titan, the final season, part part 53. No, um, I'm just going to keep making Attack At on least Titan. a part three or maybe a film epilogue. Mm, ooh, an Attack on Titan film I think would do really well, actually. I hadn't even like thought about that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, number two, this one's sort of surprising with One Punch Man, you know, One Punch Man is definitely another one of those titles that, like, is very reliably usually on the book scan list when there's, like, a new title, but, like, it is also another one of those titles that where, you know, besides when a new volume comes out, I feel like we don't see this on the book scan list as much as we should, which is interesting. Yeah, at least you're not paying attention to it, but it is really interesting. One Punch Man had, like, such a big surge last year because it was not on last year's, like, top 10 franchise of the fall list. Oh, wow. So this is a big jump for One Punch Man to have like such renewed interest and powerful sales in 2021. And I am curious what the factor is for that, because I there has not been any particular news to necessarily point to that encourage people to get more into One Punch Man. I mean, the series has been as good as ever you know, depending on how much you're invested in the storylines. So I don't know if it like was stuff in the manga last year or in the volumes coming out that like really got people to want to get it. I really have not just heard any super buzz about One Punch Man because the communities that I think I follow and interact with are kind of more tepid on the series as it's gone on. So it's interesting to see that it had such a big resurgence in sales last year, mm-hmm. especially because there was only two new volumes released last year. So, it's, you know, it must be a huge chunk of people like buying like the backlog of the series, too. Probably. So, yeah. That is very curious. Um, But at number one is not a super big surprise. Uh, we have Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba. I, I can only imagine Demon Slayer sold very, very well last year. What with uh you know, because we had the movie over here in North America for a little bit, and I'm sure that probably drove up sales too. But Demon Slayer in general is just a pretty big franchise overall right now. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, Demon Slayer, it dominated Japanese sales, it's dominating North American sales. And we might see that continue as more anime continues to get produced for Demon Slayer. But yeah, like even though the series is over, like it's still a very strong seller. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a pretty like solid list of like, you know, huge manga franchises right now. Um, Again, some that sold more than I initially thought, but like, you know, looking at this list, I can't say like, I'm super like that surprised by too many of them. Like, you know, these are the franchises that I see like the most discussion of and I see the most people, you know, get hype over, I guess, you know. 
at least in my circles anyway. Yeah, these are kind of the big name, very popular series and titles that you are to expect people are into. So Mm -hmm. it's not terribly surprising the contents of this list. Perhaps what is a little more surprising or at least really interesting is the most efficient manga franchises list. The list we just talked about is the top selling franchise in terms of overall sales. But the most efficient manga franchises list that ICV2 also compiled calculates these rankings based on the franchises that have the highest sales per volume, which gives us a completely different metric to measure these effects. I'm not going to lie. I'm I'm not. I'm still not sure if I really like understand the difference between both lists. So highest sales per volume means the most sales that like a particular stat. So if you divide the sales that a series has by the number of volume it has, like the average sales per volume, that's what this is ranking. It's different from like the overall sales, the cumulative sales that the series earned. Average sales per volume is based on like, here's the overall sales. Here's how many volumes there are. Here's the average sales per volume that the series is selling. Okay. And this is goes to show, hey, like this series with this many volumes, it actually sells a whole lot compared to a series that, you know, it might in overall sales have more, but the actual sales per volume is actually less. Okay. So it's a completely different metric, and that's why you see some more like interesting titles, titles that have less volumes on the most efficient Monica franchises list. But I mean, we still have like a lot of the ones that are in the overall top selling franchises list for last fall including at number 10 berserk you know berserk we see is like in the top five for overall but we united how many volumes there are berserk you know there's like 40 of them the ranking goes a little bit higher but still it it goes to show even a series with you know that many volumes it has really strong sales per volume like the sales individual volume of berserk high plus this hill puts it in the top 10 in terms of manga that sell off the shelves at stores you know now number nine is super interesting because that's where we get fist of the north star fist of the north star only produced three volumes last year in north america but it was the ninth most efficient manga franchises so a bookstore that stocks fist of the north star they saw huge sales on those volumes Ooh. on those individual volumes compared to a lot of other series and that's really impressive for the North Star, a series that failed twice in its prior releases in North America, to now be one of the most efficient selling comics, efficient selling manga in the market right now. It is a huge success story for Fist of North Star. It's really cool to see that people are really coming out to buy the series. And that's very encouraging. That's very cool. No, that, that is really cool to see. And uh yeah, I, I hope Fist of the North Star keeps doing well because I, I I really want to be able to own all of it you know, someday and everything. It's just, that, that's just really cool to see. I wasn't expecting that. No, and with these sales, I mean, we're definitely getting the full run. Like this is a big success for Vase. Now at number eight, we have Akira, an evergreen seller, only six volumes. But as you can see, it is a huge seller across the series. Like people consistently are buying Akira in big quantities. So it is like the eight most efficient manga franchise. It's definitely a book that retailers want on their shelves. At number seven, we have Hanako-kun. Hanako-kun has a little over 10 volumes out in English, but you know, that just goes to show, yeah, like Kanako Khan, very strong seller per volume at number seven. Same with Jujutsu Kaisen, about 15 volumes out 
as of last fall and very strong seller for volume. Now we get into number five, which is probably like the most refreshing series on this list. Our only like Shoujo Jose title on this list. And that is Wu Chikoi coming in at number five. But it's great to see that there is a Shoujo Jose series that is selling competitively in terms of per volume sales with all these other big shonen hits. And, you know, Wu Chikoi has like four volumes out in English. So that just goes to show, wow, it is an incredibly strong seller. People are buying those full volumes in great quantity because it's the fourth most efficiently selling manga franchise. So it's like uh, the fifth like most book that like retailers will want to have on their shelves because they it really does sell. People do really buy those volumes. Mm-hmm. Now Junji Ito, he has about I think a little less than a dozen, a little less than ten books, but of course his manga very popular. So he earns the spot of having the fourth most highest selling manga franchise per volume. At number three, we got Chainsaw Man, which almost complete one came out last year. So about 10-ish volumes. Third most efficient manga franchise. And number two, we have Demon Slayer. And that's interesting. The top, so in the overall sales, like Demon Slayer is number one, One Punch Man is number two. In most efficient sales per volume, Demon Slayer is number two, One Punch Man is number one. So an interesting flip-flop there. And it's particularly interesting because One Punch Man, well, it, it ha- and Demon Slayer, they have about the same amount of volumes out in English, but it guess it goes to show that even though Demon Slayer in terms of overall sales sold more than one punch man last year, if you break it down by the number of volumes, technically one punch man was an even stronger seller than Demon Slayer last year. So it's quite impressive. No, that is pretty cool. Um, no, yeah, this, uh, like you were saying, this list is really interesting because of the way you quantify, you know, certain sales or whatever. Like, yeah, it is really interesting to see, like, what ends up on this list. Fist of the North Star and Wontakoi, uh, th- th- those are the two titles I'm, like, the happiest to see on this list. I'm, I'm really glad both of those are doing well. Absolutely. So I very much appreciate that inclusion of the efficient franchises, how series are doing well in terms of per volume sales, not just in the overall. And in addition to that, ICV2 has also made a list of the top selling manga volumes for the entirety of 2021, according to NPD Bookscan sales reports. So for the period between January 3rd, 2021 to January 1st, 2022. And it's quite a collection of volumes that we won't like dig into detail, but you know, it'll, it is basically comprised of a lot of the expected franchises you would think. So in terms of representation, I think we can just like start with like, you know, what is the book that sold the most in 2021? What is the single manga volume that sold the most in 2021? And that is Attack and Titan volume one. That comes in at number one. And there are several ones in the series that also did quite well in 2021. Volume 2 came in number 16. And Volume 34, the final volume, came in at number 20. So big, big sales. For the first one of Attack on Titan, probably because of news from the ending, people getting into the series. And of course, picking up the final volume when it's coming out. So big sales for Titan. Now, My Hero Academia Volume 1 coming in at number 2. So, of course, a lot of people also getting into MHA, it looks like, because Volume 2 of MHA comes in at number 5. Volume 28, one of the most recent volumes that came out last year, came in at number 8. Volume 26 came in at number 10. Uh, Volume 27 came in at number 11. Volume 29 came in at number 12. Volume 3 came in at number 13. In terms of representation, like, MHA is one of the most represented series on this top 20 in terms of like the top selling manga volumes six volumes in this top 20 and yeah you can see big sales for the most for the first few volumes big sales for the most recent four volumes so very very impressive now 
The next title is Demon Slayer. Of course, you know, it was like our overall top selling manga of 2021. But in terms of like individual volume sales, the first one comes in at number three. And other high selling volumes include volume two at number nine. Volume 23, the final one in the series, coming in at number 14. Volumes three coming in at number 15. So we got four volumes and we see that yeah a lot of people getting into the series with the first three volumes a lot of people buying the final volume next we've got chainsaw man and chainsaw man has some good representation on this list as well at number four with its first volume and it also has its second volume at number 17 and its third one at number 18 so a lot of people we're seeing got into chainsaw man it has three of its first three volumes are in the top 20 highest selling manga volumes of last year. I genuinely would not be surprised if all 11 volumes of Chainsaw Man were on this list next year. Yeah, potentially. Now, one of the coolest inclusions is Toilet Bound and Nagakon Volume 1 and number 6. There are no other volumes of Nagakon that make the top 20 highest selling manga volumes last year, but just the fact that Volume 1 of Nagakon is well at number 6 is really impressive because it is pretty much, you know, the only Yen title on here. And besides Titan, one of the only non-Viz titles on here. So it should really, again, goes to show, t- wow, Tanaka-kun, huge seller for Viz, incredibly competitive title in the market. Oh, and yeah. People were really coming out. It's the sixth most sold manga volume of last year. Now, next we have Jujutsu Kaisen on the list. Its first volume came in at number seven. And then lastly, we have Death Note Volume 1 coming in at number 19, which is, of course, Death Note is an evergreen seller. It did not make those franchises list of top selling in terms of oral sales or in terms of per volume sales last year. But still, a lot of people continue to buy and get into Death Note. And so the first volume sold strong enough to be the 19th most sold manga volume of 2021. So... You know, very interesting list in terms of like what were the single most sell- highest selling manga volumes of last year? What was the collection of the top 20 of those? And we're seeing, yeah, it's a lot of the same franchise we would expect from the top selling franchises list, a lot of the, you know, evergreen, super popular shonen series. But there are some cool surprises in terms of some placements and, of course, we even see here that a series that was not on the other two lists that we talked about, Deck Note, you know, in terms of like single volume sales still sells quite impressively. Like you said, you know, Death Note is an evergreen franchise that people are always getting into, but it still kind of screws with me a bit because like Death Note is technically like almost 20 years old at this point. 20 next year, yes. Yeah, it, it's just it's just so interesting to think about how a series that old is still like doing so well, which is pretty, I don't, it's just kind of interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. But that basically does it for our list news. So now we'll go into our serialization news. And a lot of our serialization news this time is focused on a lot of stuff that is ending and a few thing, things that are beginning. But first, we have kind of the, the, you know, the middle ground between that stuff that is like not quite ending, not quite new, kind of in a limbo state of being in hiatus, you know, stuff like that. And so the first thing is kind of an update on a series that we kind of thought we had a timeline, a frame of reference for where it was in its story, where it was going to end. But apparently, maybe not so much because Hajime Komoto, creator of Mashal, in the afterword of Volume 10, has retracted his previous statements regarding the length of the series you know, where back a couple volumes ago, they stated the series was halfway over, you know, back between like that big exam arc where like Mash fought 
Innocent Zero the first time, whatever. Like back around when that was concluding, like Komodo was saying as well, and was coming out that, oh, the series is about halfway over. But now they are retracting and they are apologizing because they thought the series would be short, but now they're think they're lying it looks like the series will be going on longer than they initially planned which means that it is unlikely the series is going to end by its like 150th chapter or by its third year anniversary as we originally taught so potentially it could go on even longer like he might have plans to do it even longer which is interesting because reading the manga i was like oh yeah i could totally see like how the series could end in maybe another year but now i'm like hmm yeah i guess maybe he's come up with more plans for it and it'll go longer than we thought so it's very very interesting so you know originally we thought oh we're closer to the ending of mashal than we thought but no it looks like actually the ending of mashal might be further away than we thought so i am a little behind on mashal so i can't really speak to this myself but and i, I hate to even bring this up because i don't want to put on my conspiracy hat but do you think editorial has anything behind this? Potentially. It doesn't really seem their MO these days. I feel like the idea of like, oh, Jump wants to artificially extend the lifespan of the series. I feel like we've seen in recent years that they're comfortable with letting series end, you know, even super popular successful series end, you know, after just three, four years. Mm-hmm. Or even shorter in the case of Chainsaw Man, although Chainsaw Man, of course, has its part two or not coming not in weekly jump but you know we'll see i mean it could be that you know editorial say hey you know this is a series that has big potential maybe think of plans to continue it on or it could just be komodo realizing actually there's way more story that i need to draw than i originally thought so i kind of get get out ahead of this thing actually no i think the series will go on longer than i originally promised which is a totally reasonable thing that authors uh want to do in terms of underestimating how long it actually takes to tell the story they want to tell so you know we don't know for sure quite yet what is driving the decision or why he felt the need that oh actually uh, i think the series is gonna go longer so i gotta apologize to you in the afterward <laughs> but yeah i I'm curious now to see, like, it's, oh, you know, we thought that Mashal might end after a certain amount of time, but now it's like, oh, now it's a little more up in the air. Maybe it'll go on much longer than we thought it would. Yeah, I'll have to catch up with Mashal soon and see how I feel about that. But I'm not too upset about uh, Mashal running longer because I, I like Mashal a lot. I think it's a very funny series and uh, I'm, I'm excited to read more of it. So, yeah. Now, speaking of a series that is over, but it's going to give us like another nice hurrah, another special treat is Haikyuu. Of course, it is its 10th anniversary. And as part of many projects to celebrate the 10th anniversary, it'll be getting a new one shot later this year. This show, like what Hinata and the other characters are up to in 2022. We don't know when the one shot will be published. We don't necessarily know where we assume jump, but perhaps not. But yes, we are going to be getting a new Haikyuu manga chapter at some point this year which will be a delight to read, I'm sure. It'll be interesting to see. Well, what it will be for Adate's take. Will they will he have Hinata and the rest of the characters deal with how they play volleyball in the pandemic age? Are you going to ignore that? <laughs> you know, like the, the Olympics did not even happen in 2020. They got pushed to 2021. Are they going to have to talk about that? I don't 
no, they'll focus on that. But, you know, it'll be nice to catch up on the characters, you know, and one nice check in with them. Another chapter of Haikyuu. Mm hmm. Um, you know, I'm very excited to I mean, I'm probably not going to read this right away because uh, I am making my way through Haikyuu so we can hopefully record about the series in like the next month or two somewhere around then but uh you know i'm i'm sure we'll probably talk about it on one of our next silent pubs episodes when it's out but uh i'm interested in hearing about it because i i know how haikyuu ends and i i know a lot about like the final arc already but i'm i'm still really excited to like get to that point and i'm that this this is like a little treat almost for me to like uh for like when i finish haikyuu it's like oh i have something else to read when i'm done mm-hmm. well next we're gonna be talking about series that are going on hiatus or rather, coming back from hiatus. And the first of these is one that has been on hiatus for a long, long time, and that's Heart Gear by Takaki Suyoshi. And Heart Gear has been on hiatus for like two years, since like 2020. So it's quite surprising. Heart Gear, according to the author, is going to be coming back soon. We don't know quite yet, yet but it looks like it will be returning finally after two years. So not the first time we've seen an author take a long hiatus and come back. World Trigger also had like a two-year hiatus before it returned. So, you know, it's good to see that Tsuyoshi will be returning to the series soon. And it'll be nice to catch up on Heart Gear and keep up with it again. Yeah, I should I should do the same too. Mm-hmm. A series that has been on a less of a large hiatus, but still like about a year at this point, is Blue Exorcist. And Blue Exorcist is going to be resuming finally, but not next month as we originally thought, but in May instead. It'll be coming in the June issue of Jump Square. So it's been quite a while. You know, they kind of stopped in the middle of the you know final battle, final art kind of thing. So it's like, oh man. I really want to see the next part of the story. So I'm glad the Blue Exorcist will be coming back this year, a month later than originally planned. But, you know, it'll be good to read it again. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to talk about series that are heading towards endings or have ended. And the one series that is heading towards its ending, before we get to stuff that's ended, is Seraph of the End, which is not a surprise to me. Reading the series, I was like, oh, yeah, I could totally see that it is coming to an end. But yes, in the 26th volume, the author, Takaya Kagami, did reveal that the series is heading towards its climax. So potentially it could end either this year, maybe early next year. Definitely I could see it winding down based on where we are in the story. So, you know, very interesting to think that both Blue Exorcist and Seraph are probably going to come to an end around the same time in terms of like where they're at in the story. You know, I mean, one might last like a little bit longer than the other, but they're both heading towards an end. They're both into the final stretches. So very, very curious uh, that Jump Square will be losing uh, or having two of its bigger series end around the same time, or they're both aiming to end in the very near future. Mm -hmm. I need to start reading Seraph of the End one day. That's been on my list for a while. It is a series of ups and downs. <laughs> Not a big fan of, uh, a, a, for a long stretch of the early material. Yeah. Then when it starts leaning into some certain character relationships I like more, then I start getting into it. And I wouldn't say like it's a super well-written series overall, but it has its fun points for sure. And has some really interesting characters for sure. Okay. Well, I, I guess as long as it's fun, then it's not like super terrible or anything. You know, I can get past that. Yeah, it's no platinum end. You know, it's not a <laughs> it's not a truly bad series uh, at, at, at any point. I was kind of wondering like where it was on like the platinum end scale of terrible. No. Boy. 
anyway, uh, we'll get to Platinum End sometime this year. That's going to be fun. But um, let's let's talk about a series that ended yesterday at the time of this recording. So Dr. Stone by Richiro Inagaki and Boichi has ended in Weekly Shonen Jump. It was also announced that... Uh, because we also talked about how the Dr. Stone anime is getting like a TV special centered on Ryusui. And I guess to kind of commemorate that, uh, Jump is going to be publishing like an extra manga chapter to kind of coincide with that, which is interesting. Yeah. And actually, we don't know if the chapter will be like a direct tie-in to the Ryusui special or just will be a new chapter on the same time it comes out. But I imagine it'll be a tie-in of some sort, especially since Ryusui is a popular character, right? And you didn't get that much focus in the final chapter. So I could definitely see like maybe an additional epilogue chapter just on him. Mm-hmm. Maybe like uh, from from his like point of view of like, you know, how things are going. Yeah, just catching up on like what he's doing now, you know, spending more time on that. I'd read it. I'm, I'm excited for it. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if I want to spend like a whole lot of time talking about the ending because we do have a lot of other stuff to talk about. But um, I caught up on Dr. Stone in time for its ending yesterday. And I have to be honest, I'm very mixed on the ending. I'm not sure if I thought it was like super satisfying or not, but that's just me. That's the long and short of how I feel. But overall, I still thought it was a really good series, though. Yeah, I thought the ending overall worked. That was a little taken aback. Uh, initially with the twist with Y man. Yep. And then I feel like the <laughs> going over like all the ways he influenced the events of the story, you know, a lot of it felt a little reachy, but overall I appreciate what it was going for. Yeah. And I thought it, the resolution that felt right for Dr. Stone. So overall I thought it had a pretty satisfying ending in that regard. Mm-hmm. I'll put it this way. It, I, I think it's the ending that Dr. Stone needed. Like, I think it's the ending that makes sense. But I also, in terms of like what I wanted out of the series, I don't know if it really was that fulfilling. But that that's just me personally. I still think it ended well. But um, I will say I'm glad that we haven't done a Dr. Stone episode yet because I think I have a better idea of how I feel about the series overall now that I've seen now that we know the big picture and how everything sort of concludes. And and obviously, you know, when we get around to doing our Dr. Stone episode, I am going to be doing a big read through uh, reread, I should say, because um, I there are definitely portions of the series I haven't like visited in a while. And it would be nice to kind of like read this in sort of mostly one sitting or at the very least not have to read it week to week, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in how I'm going to feel after, like, not having to read it chapter by chapter, you know? Yeah. It's always interesting to revisit a series after knowing the big picture of, like, where everything is leading to. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm really looking forward to the day Boichi comes back and hopefully does another manga for Jump, because, man, th- there were there were some, like, great double-page spreads within, like, those last ten chapters of Dr. Stone where I'm just like, man... How was this drawn weekly? Like, this seems impossible. I don't know how he does it. Yeah, he is the truly incredible artist. But yeah, D- Dr. Stone overall, still pretty good. I still enjoyed reading it. Mm-hmm. And moving on from jump-related stuff that is ending to other series that have ended, we've been tracking that Dead Dead Demons was heading towards a conclusion for a while, but it has basically confirmed an ending as of the end of February. And yeah. The Demons is finally over, and and on this little series that I started reading pretty much when it was coming out uh, initially before I even was licensed, and you know, I need to catch up on it. But yeah, I mean, it 
is an interesting work from Asano, and it's ended about a good run of about 12-ish volumes. So yeah, I'm definitely keen to catch up on it and curious to see what Asano's like next like big, long work is going to be after this one. And uh, other series that are like heading towards an end now are include Gundam Thunderbolt from Yasuko Otsuka. It recently was announced that that series is entering its final stage, which is interesting timing considering that, you know, Wheeler and I have just been catching up on buying the series and, you know, I've been interested in doing a read-through of all of it. After, you know, I've read the first couple of volumes, I really enjoyed it, but fell off and need to catch up. So yeah, it's cool that it's going to be coming to an end after, you know, a run of over 10 years, pretty much. Like its 10th anniversary is this year. And I don't know like how close it is to an ending, whether it's going to go past the 10th anniversary. But it looks like it'll end with a little over 20 volumes. So very, very curious to see how it's going to end. And glad that Otaki has been able to continue working on the series, you know, at their own pace you know, after having some health issues in recent years and that the quality of the series, from what I can tell of the recent volumes has not suffered. Like it still looks very good. So yeah, I'm very, very keen to catch up and read the series as it heads towards conclusion. Uh, the next series that I'm keen to catch up on that we covered on the show when it first debuted as a simulpub is Lockdown Zone Level X. That'll be ending with its third volume. And yeah, I mean, this is one that Dempo was publishing as a simulpub. We reviewed the first chapter. It was an interesting setup and series. And I've continued to, you know, simulpub and offer digital chapter series. So now that the series is coming to an end, maybe they will start offering uh, the volumes in like print and digital. And I'd definitely be keen to pick those up to read the entirety of the series. No, yeah. I, uh, I, I remember like liking it enough and thinking it was interesting. I think I read like a couple more chapters of it before I just kind of, uh, it just kind of fell to the wayside and I just kind of forgot to keep up with it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping they think about at least putting up digital volumes of this because like I would rather just like buy three volumes of this than having to spend money on like literally every single chapter so i don't know I'd, I'd like to get back to it and see how it ends um so i don't know I'd, I'd like to pick this back up eventually absolutely another series that is heading towards an end is blend s that'll be ending about three-ish chapters at the time of this recording and blend s is a series i really enjoyed the anime of when it came out a few years ago i like the characters and the vibe of it and soul press started releasing the series in digital like late in 2020 but you know as we're going to talk about soul press i don't know if they're going to be around much longer they haven't really even released any more all of the series since the first volume mm -hmm. uh, that long ago so the state of the manga license has been in limbo and hopefully it can just someone else can pick it up if they do fold uh, eventually so yeah i mean you can still buy that first volume on like Amazon Comicsology was just removed from Buck Walker with the other Soul Press stuff. But yeah, uh, I, I don't know what the state of license is going to be like. I don't know what the state of Soul Press is going to be like. But, you know, I like Blendes and I would like to read more of the manga after enjoying the anime. So, yeah, this series will be ending in a few issues of Time Kirara Charat. And hopefully we will eventually get the entirety of the manga in English, uh, if not by Soul maybe by someone else uh, who writes and just do it after they fold, but we'll see. Now, a manga that, you know, I am very excited to read its ending, a series that, yeah, it's really, you know, been running for a long time, and finally coming to a conclusion is Chiai Furu, 
That is going to end in its 49th volume, which will come out in a few months. And yeah, like, you know, the series has been heading towards its ending for a while now. And it's been in its, like, final matches. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very, very keen to see how the series ends and catch up on it. And this is one that, you know... Hopefully Kadansha, as they've continued been doing, will continue to translate the volumes digitally and put them up to read. So, you know, they're a little over halfway into the series now, essentially. I mean, they have like 20-ish volumes to go. Uh, so it might take a few more years, but like I'm definitely keen to read more Chiafru and read how the series ends. Like I'm super intrigued to invest. I want to see that, you know, final match between Chiai and Shinobu for sure. Oh man, uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to eventually read the rest of Chihaya Furu and and maybe revisit it on the podcast possibly now that it's over. Just just a possibility. Yeah, I definitely would like to, especially since we didn't even cover half the series essentially. So <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I read more than some others. But yeah, like definitely. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Kodansha, I mean, now when something about Kodansha manga have ended, you know, Fire Force has ended, you know, we've been tracking that news for a while. It ended with kind of a big twist that was very controversial, I will say, in <laughs> some corners. Like people who don't like Fire Force especially were not happy with the tie-in to Soul Leader. Let's, you know, just put that out there. Though if you've been reading Fire Force, the signs were there for a long time. So it's not, it didn't come as a super surprise to me, though I think it was a little super on the nose to have like, you know, characters or so they're literally like young Maka reading the story of like Shinra is like a legend in a storybook her parents are reading her, you know. But, you know, even though like we've also been tracking that Okubu has been saying that this is going to be his final work and stuff, like the text in the final page of the manga in magazine says, look forward to Atsushi Akobo's work. So, you know, that might just be stock death. Yeah. Or maybe he's changed his mind. We don't know yet. I, you know, even though Okubu said he was going to retire after Fire Force, I kind of would be surprised if he stays retired. He's pretty young uh, in terms of the age of mangaka, and it feels like he could still do more in his career if he wanted to. So, like, I could see him taking a break for a long time, but he might return to manga one day. I would not rule that out. But, yeah, it's just interesting they chose to include that text rather than say, oh, thank you for reading this work. And um, this is a Kobe's last record or whatnot. But yeah, it seems like, at least from Gideon's perspective, oh, well, maybe, you know, Okobo will come back. So we don't want to say this is final work. So we'll just use the stock text, even though he's said that, uh, yeah, I think this will be my final. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see uh, if it does remain his final work and if he doesn't return to manga or if he does in the future. I mean, look, maybe he's just made that much money off of Fire Force and Soul Eater. You never know. I mean, there were successful series, but yeah, I, I don't know. Was, I don't think it would be like a money thing. It'd be like creativity thing. I feel like he said that he, he wanted to retire after Fire Force because it's like, oh, well, creatively, this is like I'm trying everything I've been interested into this work, which I can definitely tell from Fire Force that he put in a lot of ideas and themes he's been de- developing over the course of his career and his series and kind of bring them to a thematic culmination uh, in Fire Force. But at the same time, I could still easily see him get new ideas and come back to the world like he's only in his early 40s, like he's very young uh, in terms of his career, uh, in terms of you know, so I could easily say, yeah, I mean, he could take a break for a while, but one day he, if he gets the ideas again, you know, he could return. So I think like 
Kadansha might be hedging their bets on like, oh yeah, maybe one day Okubo will want to draw again. So we don't want to say this is his final work. And yeah, we'll see. Time will tell. Time will tell if he does return to the world of manga after Fire Force. All I know is we're definitely going to have to do podcast episodes on both Fire Force and Soul Leader now. Oh my god. I... I, I saw a lot of talk about the ending to Fire Force when that uh, last chapter came out. And I don't know. I, look, uh, maybe some people are, up, are upset about it. I don't know. But this just makes me want to read Fire Force more, honestly, because I, I really do love Soul Eater. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have mixed feelings because I don't feel Fire Force needed to be like a direct tie in the Soul Eater. But like thematically, the series are very linked. And I could see how Fire Force can serve as a prequel to Soul Eater in terms of like the world building in terms of like general ideas that Kubo has been exploring again throughout Soul Leaders, throughout his artworks, all the way into Fire Force. He's been kind of building on those ideas. So I can see the connections, even though I'm like, eh, the, the stories need to be like explicitly linked. But, you know, it's something to definitely evaluate and reevaluate uh, in rereading the manga for the show. And, you know, Kobo, he has like a lot of I mean, his biggest detriment to his work is just his very obnoxious fan service and pervy humor, which I know is a huge turn off to a lot of people. Like a lot of people completely poo poo the manga and like say, oh, the Soul Eater anime salvaged the story of the series. But, you know, I think Okubo is a very interesting artist in terms of the ideas he's trying to explore in his stories. So and I think that he his work has a lot of fair criticism to be made about it. I definitely am not a fan of a lot of uh, stuff in especially early Fire Force and even like early Soul Eater. But yeah, I mean, it's he's an interesting artist to evaluate, especially because his works are all developed around this idea of like the order of society and how it is like just tenuously balanced in terms of like people's mental health and just people are like one step away into falling into like madness and how we create modes of social order and all that stuff. So he's an interesting artist with interesting like ideas he likes to explore. So it's definitely gonna be interesting to explore his work and show. But to move on to some new series from actors we enjoy that we're looking forward to, Deadpool Samurai artist Hikaru Wasagi is currently recruiting assistance for a new manga that's going to be launching in Kadanja's magazine pocket app. And Deadpool Samurai, you know, the manga just came out in English recently. It's a lot of fun. The Deadpool irreverence brought to satirizing the World of Manga Jump manga in particular. So I'm very curious to see Uswagi's next work and what it'll be like. And I feel he'll bring that kind of same kind of spirit to it in his next work, even if it's not like a, you know, Deadpool like type comedy satire parody series. Another series I'm super looking forward to, or another author creating a new series I'm really, really excited to read, is Keito Gaku, the creator of Boys Run the Riot. They're going to be creating a new series on comic days. I love Boys Run the Riot, one of my favorite manga last year. Really, really looking forward to Gaku's next work, and hopefully we will see it be licensed picked up not too shortly after it starts series and gets compiled into volumes. Now, another title, Kadansha, really, that I'm also extremely intrigued by and hope crossing my fingers we might see a license of it but who knows is Fujita Kazuya Fujita is going to be doing a third arc a third season of his mystery manga series The Black Museum we got the second arc of it Ghost of the Lady by Kananji USA a few years ago and it's been quite a few years since he published that it's been like seven years since he published that and this new arc that he's doing Dance for the Monster of the Moon but yeah no, hopefully 
this will also be a short volume work that Kodansha could pick up and publish over here. I would really like to read more Fugitive stuff and especially more stuff in the Black Museum anthology series. So this is coming out pretty soon and actually the first chapter should be published by the time you're listening to this. So very, very keen to learn more about it. I'm sure our friends at SNS will definitely pick up the Japanese release of this and might cover it on the show. We'll fill us in with some more deets. Oh man, we desperately need more Fujita manga over here. I'm I'm begging. Yeah. But, you know, there's been so there are a lot of authors whose work we really enjoy who are coming back with new work, but I mean the next person is like a, a particularly big one cuz after the last series, you know, they took a huge break from manga and we were worried about them and whether they returned, but uh, they're coming back with a bang with not just new manga but a sequel to like their perhaps most iconic work and a work that i think that we both really love oh man speaking of begging um so makoto raiku you may or may not know him as the author of konjiki no gashuberu or zatch bell over in the states as it was titled on tsunami through the anime so he announced on his personal Twitter that he's basically gonna be doing a sequel to zatch bell literally called konjiki no gash 2 so I guess we don't have like a whole lot of details on this other than he wants to try to start this up by mid-March. So it it might have already started by the time you're listening to this or is starting soon, but it is coming really, really soon. And uh, he's going to be publishing that on various digital book services. If I remember correctly, I think he's like self He's been self-publishing Zatch Bell on his own. Yeah, he basically has taken the entirety of the rights to Zatch in particular. And so he's just self-publishing the series. And this new sequel series will also be self-published on digital book services. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, really interested in seeing, like, I mean, first off, you know, I haven't read Zatch Bell in a very long time. So my memory of the ending is a little hazy. But from what I remember, I feel like it ended pretty well. I mean, I, I'm just interested in seeing like what a sequel could be like. Yeah, it's interesting because it can't be the same like battle tournament thing because like the whole point of the ending is to abolish that. I mean, that was their whole goal. So it'll be interesting to see how like, oh, there's going to be like a new different contest to be king that is like more humanitarian like not as cruel and so that might be interesting um so yeah i'm just curious to see like what take the sequel series will go like what direction will go Mm -hmm. also i mean i mean first off i would just want the original series to be totally like re-released because uh as some of you may know uh viz media unfortunately didn't finish the release of zatch bell and i I want to assume that's because A, it probably wasn't selling that well. I guess we don't really know that for sure. I think more is because of the legal problems that, you know, Raikou, like, taking the rights back to the series from Shigaku Khan after being upset at them damaging his, you know, original art, his cover pages. I was going to say that's probably the other reason, yeah. And that happened, like, as Wiz was still publishing the series. So when he took those rights back from Shigaku Khan, that affected Wiz's license for the series. And so I think that they flat out just couldn't publish more after that. I'm, I'm still really upset that we never got to finish that release. So I think that's my next big licensing wish is I hope someone picks up all his Zatch Bell and just re-releases it. yeah. Um, hey, maybe I need to start putting that into those seven seas surveys because I I really want the original series to come back and I I would also love to be able to read this new sequel series. I just, I need Zatch Bell back in my life. I really miss it. Yeah. We need a new release of the manga. We need the sequel. And 
if we're lucky, I would really love an actual, like, uncut release of the anime, too, because I feel like we haven't gotten that yet. Yeah, we haven't. And never gotten, like, the complete anime available legally, like those final 50 episodes. That's true, yeah. That'd be nice. Heck, it'd be nice to have, like, a, a new anime akin to the Shaman King reboot anime where, like, it covers entire series. Hopefully not as fast-paced as the Shaman King anime, though. I was kind of <laughs> expected how they were going to adapt that, but, you know. And, yeah, like, I definitely would expect that if anyone was going to license Rescue, it'd have to be, like, a third-party publisher, like Seven Seas or Yen Press, because I don't think he's interested in working with uh, Shigaku-Khan anymore, for sure. And I'm not sure about Kadansha uh, after what happened with Rector Ball. So it'd have to be someone who has no connections to them if they were going to go contact Raikou to license his work and publish it in English. Or, like, if the work is too long for an indie publisher to reasonably pick it up, I mean, maybe Dempa, uh, but that's, you know, Dempa would be like, you know, (laughs) Dempa, they kind of have their hands full on a lot of longer series they're already doing already. So, you know, I would just appreciate anyone taking the chance to re-license the release Satch Bell. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see if that could ever happen. At the very least, maybe the sequel series, since it's newer, and shorter as of this time, maybe someone will take an interest in, uh, you know, who knows? I would like to see it. Oh, I hope so. I mean, look, you, you said Denpa, and I know they probably can't do it. But man, I, I feel like if Denpa picked it up, and this is just a guess on my part, I feel like that would probably rake them in a fair bit of money. Because I, I know there are people who really want Zatch Bell back. I think it'd do very well for whoever picks it up, because Zatch Bell has a lot of nostalgia going for it. The people who grew up on it, like us, you know, they really hold the series fondly in their heart, and they would want to, like, go out and buy it again. So I think it would do quite well. I think so, too, yeah. It just is a matter of, like, well, it's a big commitment, so who is willing to take, you know, that chance on it, and who is willing to just be able to just publish those books? I mean, it also is going to depend on like what a Raikou is receptive to having his work published in English again, if that's something he's interested in and like publishers can actually negotiate with him for that, which hopefully he is open to it. You know, hopefully this know that, you know, there's a big international following for his work and people want to read his series. So yeah, hopefully. Oh man. Uh, Seven C's, if you're listening, I would definitely buy this day one. Mm-hmm. Same here. So that actually brings us to the end of our serialization news and brings us into our licensing news. And because we had a lot of new licenses announced from a variety of publishers last year, and, you know, just to refer to them again, Seven Seas, particularly drowned us in a tidal wave of licenses that we couldn't even trash a scourge for ourselves through our licenses list. But before we even get to those lists, we do have like a few, you know, stray licensing updates on some platforms and some publishers. And the first among these include Manga Plaza. We had talked about them before when they announced they're starting up, but they have officially launched their service. They're offered a free trial to, you know, U.S. audiences, readers in the U.S., and like they're going to award $10 Amazon gift cards to 301 new registrants. And I peruse through their catalog, and it is kind of like the Kadansh catalog you can expect to find pretty much everywhere now, as well as some like Harlequin manga titles. They actually have quite a lot of those. And yeah, I mean, they are 
aiming to offer like a bunch of titles from Yudanja Kadokawa in particular. They're hoping to release original titles that don't have English releases yet, but I couldn't quite identify what those were. They don't just have like a page of, like, hey, these are our exclusives. Like the navigation is like everything is just lumped in all together. So it's kind of a little hard to parse through what they have, what they don't. But they certainly do have a lot of stuff. You know, they currently offer access to 50,000 chapters from 2000 titles so that is a lot of manga for their monthly fee or whatnot so you know if you are looking for a different manga service to try out uh, you can look through their catalog and see like if uh, they offer anything that interests you that you can't get from elsewhere or no. so yeah you know you can check it out for sure and i'm interested in seeing what their new titles will be hopefully they'll like announce those and you know they'll do proper press release and so we can identify those and maybe cover it on the show on our next simuls roundup or do a licensing uh roundup and yeah i'm just curious to see what this service will offer in terms of like their like original uh, exclusive titles now, we talked about it a little bit before with Blend S, but yeah, there was a big Soul Press kind of update in Hullabaloo in that, like, the, all of their titles were basically removed from Bookwalker Global in late February. And yeah, so you can't buy any of the titles anymore. You can still read the books after they've been removed. So, you know, people will buy them to read them. But it seems that these takedowns are taking place as requested by the original publishers and that it shouldn't affect the books in their source. So is it the publishers who have a problem with Bookwalker or is there a contractual problem between them and Soul? We don't know, but the, apparently there is like a lot of behind the scenes kind of drama going on with Soul Press. Like there's a lot of Stuff, it seems, that's not going well for them. So who knows if they're going to stick around as a publisher. What's going to happen with their titles and the licenses. But they, you know, do not seem to be doing super well. Like their business. So then that seems to have affected the status of their books. And Bookwalker, uh, potentially, it might just affect their ability to sell books at all. Like their books are still available, like on Amazon, Kindle, and whatnot. But... It's, it's a curious situation. I'm hearing a lot of stuff in the grapevine that there's some stuff happening with them, for sure. Now, the last thing we'll mention before we go into our licensing list is that Starfruit Books, you know, we love the work they're doing. They're launching a really exciting project. A regular published manga magazine called Comic Bright that's going to contain manga essays, interviews, and other comic-related content. And that's really, really cool to see like a new digital manga magazine. And I'm excited to see what Matt's going to bring to it and like all the stuff that's going to be included in it. It's going to be super cool. I'm sure that when it comes out, we'll definitely spotlight it on the show because it's really exciting. I love seeing a new initiatives to try and do manga magazines again. Oh my god, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to try to find time to talk about this on the show, because uh, I would really, really love to check this out. This is definitely a, uh, something I really want to support. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's time to get into our uh, selected list of licenses. And uh, I mean, I'm so glad we're doing these lists because covering literally every single individual license probably would have taken about an hour, hour and a half, probably. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I guess. Um, is it OK if I go first or do you want to go first? Oh, sure. Go ahead. 
All right, so uh, the first few licenses I'm going to be talking about are from Kodansha that they are releasing digital only at this time. And the first license I want to highlight is Apple Children of Aeon. I think that's how you pronounce that by Ai Tanaka. Uh, that actually should be out by the time you're listening to this, uh, in which Yuki Nojo doesn't know his past, but he knows his future. A marriage to Asahi, heir to an apple farm in Aomori, but what should have been a quiet pastoral life was interrupted one snowy day, and what should have laid dormant was awoken by his naive hands. So this one caught my eye, not just because of the cover, but because of how vague the premise for this is. And I don't know, those combined usually kind of interest me with certain titles. So I can't tell if this is supposed to be like... um, like a slice of life drama kind of thing, or if this is something that's going to like start off like that and maybe like turn into something more, maybe. I don't know. I'm just, I'm very interested in checking this out. And then next up, I want to highlight Piano Duo for the Left Hand by Kenta Matsuoka. That'll be coming out on March 15th, in which Shu has had a rough start to his life and doesn't think he has much of a future until fate brings him together with the talented young pianist and fellow student Akari Yuzuki, uh, the girl with the quote-unquote angelic left hand for one high-flying adventure. But when tragedy cuts the relationship short, Shu realizes he must find a way to live for both of them uh, and realizes that something is no longer quite right with his own left hand. Oh no! His friend dies, and he becomes his left hand, and I'm assuming this is a a musical uh, pianist manga, and I don't know. The, uh, I'm very interested in music manga with the supernatural twist. I, I don't know. Something about that really, like, intrigues me. I would definitely love to check this out. And then next up is a title that we've kind of talked about here and there, uh, and one that... Um, You know, Kodansha at first actually released, I think, the first chapter as, like, a preview, but never really, like, followed up on it for whatever reason. Uh, And that is Boots Leg by Suzuhito Yasuda, uh, which will be coming out on March 29th, in which, at seven years old, Zen's parents, sister, and his own left leg were swallowed by the mysterious gloved entity only known as Shake Hand. And Zen's not the only one. In the seven years after, these gloved hand incidents have only increased, and others have lost families, limbs, but Zen is powerless to do anything about it until the fateful night his eyes are open and he once again comes face to face with the mysterious, murderous shake hand, and the artisan syndicate sworn to stop him known as Bootsleg, an oversized, action-packed new series from the author of Yosakura Quartet. And I'm not gonna lie, I didn't initially read that first chapter uh, when it came out just because I I just don't think I really got around to it. But um, hearing the premise and hearing that our main character has to fight an organization called Shake Hand admittedly has me very intrigued. And I don't know, it, it just it just sounds really interesting. The, the premise is not what I expected. I mean, I guess I don't know really what I expected, but I guess I wasn't expecting something like this. So I'll, I'll definitely check this out. And yeah, I think that's about it for all the Kodansha stuff I wanted to highlight. Um, I'm going to move on to some stuff from Viz. Uh, They announced quite a few titles that I'm very excited for. Some that are coming out in print that were only available digitally. Um, Some some digital exclusives. I, I guess I'll start with one of them first. Um, you know, obviously, they, they announced a lot of like, what we like to call jump stop manga, you know, jump manga that were clearly like canceled or ended prematurely. And some of those titles are coming out, which, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Viz is releasing more of those and making those more available. But the one digital exclusive I really want to highlight, despite who translated it, is the comic from Kazuki Takahashi, basically a Halloween themed mystery manga that he did for Jump back in 2018, I believe. Yeah, it was for Jump's 50th. Yeah. 
And, you know, I, I definitely wanted to highlight this, again, mostly because this was a series that was only available through Viz's Shonen Jump. Like, if, if you have those issues, you can read it, but if you if you missed out on those, like, you just didn't have access to this. So I'm, you know, I, I've been really wanting them to, like, release this some way, somehow. It is kind of interesting that they took so long to, like, release this, but, like, you know, I'm glad that they're releasing this at all. Like, I would have preferred a print volume for this because it is only one volume but i'll take what i can get at this point because you know i read it and i do enjoy it um again we have to put out there that this was translated by stefan koza and it's very unlikely that the translation is going to be untouched so that's unfortunate yeah it has not been confirmed yet, but based on kind of implied stuff from folks we know, it doesn't seem the translation of the manga will be different. We know that Caleb is doing the extras, but based on what is unspoken, it is very much likely to be the case that, you know, the same translation is going to be used. I think the idea is, oh, well, it's already done. You know, we already have a translation. Why pay someone else to do another one? It's the same mentality, which is why we still have the Gerard Jones localizations being used in uh, Dragon Ball and Ranma. And then it's not like they've retranslated the Jujutsu Kaisen stuff that he did either. So, yeah. Well, again, I don't know how this stuff works internally, but I, I would at least hope that he's not credited on the release. But I no, I think he will be because like the Jujutsu Kaisen books still credit him. The new volumes for the stuff he translated. So that is really weird. OK, I mean, they I congratulate. I don't think they can't they cannot credit him for doing the work and using his work. I mean, you know, the same thing with Dragon Ball and crediting Gerard Jones and stuff, you know? So it's unfortunate, but you will probably have to see and acknowledge his name in the credits. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, just to be transparent, that we did record a podcast about the comic, like back in the day with Stefan Koza before everything that came out about him came out. And, you know, we we've, we talked about this before, but I at least wanted to be transparent and say that, like, I would like to talk about the comic again eventually, because I do think it's worth talking about. But it is also one of those things where it's like, I don't know if either of us or the both of us really want to deal with talking about a comic that was translated by a pedophile is the thing. So yeah, that makes it kind of hard for me to like fully be okay with like promoting this. But again, like it's, it also sucks because we really don't get a lot of other manga from Kazuki Takahashi. But yeah, the one thing to keep in mind is that translators and letters and realizations don't get royalties off the books. That's true. Yeah. So Stefan has essentially been the platformed at this point and is very unlikely he's ever going to work in this industry again. So if you do buy the book, you're not going to be really supporting him. You will be supporting Takahashi. Yes, that's important. Yeah. My discomfort in talking about it again is just the baggage of having covered it before with him and not really wanting to engage with his work again. But if you just want to read the comic, just you can re be rest assured that if you buy the book, you're not supporting him so much as you are supporting Takahashi because, you know, the work he did on this was years ago, and he's not going to receive any royalties on this. Which, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, I would be upset about that, hey, localizers probably should be receiving royalties from the work. But in this case, you know, it can work out that you don't have to feel guilty about buying this book in particular. Which it would be a different situation if, the, you know, we're buying a book from an author uh, who is a convicted sex criminal and pedophile, like, you know, Watsky and stuff like that. But this is a case where... 
you know, if you want to read Takashi's work uh, and you can get past the fact of who translated it, you know, you don't have to feel bad of like, oh, the, the money is going to someone I don't want to support. No, th- that that is important to keep in mind, too. Yeah. Um, final thing I'll say about this is that I don't want to say we'll never come back to this, but at the same time, don't be surprised if it takes us a long time to feel comfortable talking about this particular title again. But again, I, I would I would like to talk about it again maybe one day because it is a good comic and I think it's worth talking about. And I, I love Kazuki Takahashi's work. So if, if you love his work, and you haven't read this before, I would still like give this a full recommendation. Um, and I probably should also mention uh, this is going to be coming out this summer. Again, exclusively digitally available. And yeah, if you feel comfortable buying it, go buy it. But just to kind of move away from all that, um, I guess I'm going to be talking about two of their print titles that are going to be coming this fall. Uh, the first of which I was not expecting to get a print release, but... Uh, Knowing what we know about uh, how well it may have done on the Shonen Jump app, I guess I'm not that surprised. This is going to be coming out with the print release of Yuki Kawaguchi's The Hunter's Guild Red Hood, which is really, really cool. We've definitely talked about this on one of our previous Simulpub episodes, and we've we've talked about Red Hood kind of on and off on the podcast here and there, Uh, but in case you don't know anything about it, it is basically this sort of like, I guess for lack of a better word, grim take on the Grimm's fairy tales kind of sort of aesthetic, if you will, about this kid whose village is invaded by wolves and eventually joins up with this hunter lady who can turn into an even taller, more beautiful hunter lady that uh, everybody definitely thirsted for and still continue to do so. But, um, you know, th- this was this was a series that, like, definitely ended prematurely and is something I would consider a jump stop, but is a series that, like, had, st- uh, like, had a lot of stuff that I liked about it still, despite whatever issues we may have with it. It is definitely a series that I would still recommend to people read it because the art is also very super good. And um, I'm just excited to have this in print because also for those who don't know, our good friend of the podcast, King Letterer, Brandon Bovia, is going to be doing the English lettering for this. And man, I am so excited to see the work he's going to do on this, uh, especially for a lot of those like early chapters where I, I think that's where some of my favorite lettering comes in. So yeah, I, I think this is definitely worth supporting. Uh, if you're a fan of, if you're obsessed with canceled Shonen Jump manga like we are, this is definitely worth supporting. Absolutely. Uh, but that'll be coming out this fall, along with a new work from Paru Itagaki, the author of Beastars with Drip Drip, or if you've heard us talk about it on the show before, Bota Bota. We definitely talked about the series when it first started sort of publishing. Um, and if I if I remember correctly, this is a this is a series about about an older adult woman who basically wants to have sex with men, but has this condition where if she does anything even slightly dirty, uh, she has massive nosebleeds. <laughs> um, so it's a very, very interesting series from what I've heard and from what I've seen of it. I'm really glad that Viz is taking more of a chance on more stuff from Itagaki because I think that definitely means that Beastars did really well for them. So I'm just I'm just excited to see more of her work. I'm also hoping that if this does well, we'll get uh, we'll also get that other series she's doing about um, about Santa Claus. I just I just really want to see more of her work. Um, so I'm I'm really glad that this is getting the physical treatment. Um, but again, that's also going to be coming out this fall. Definitely looking forward to that. And uh, just to kind of round off my list, uh, I do have a couple of titles from Seven Seas. I mean, Seven Seas, holy shit, they announced like so much stuff. 
stuff. Um, and they announced a lot of really big stuff, too. Two classic manga in particular that I will be mentioning. And I guess I'll start off with this first classic title because they're going to be releasing the original Sprigan manga, uh, a series that originally was published by Viz back in the day, but didn't get finished releasing and is now getting a full release, hopefully, especially thankfully because of like the new Netflix anime that's coming out for this. I'm pretty sure that's a big reason why they picked it up. Uh, just to have this available. Um, I had like one floppy of this. Like this, this was something I actually randomly found back in the day uh, perusing my like local comic shop or whatever. And I was just like, oh, it's an old Viz floppy of like a series I've never heard of. And I don't, I think I skimmed through it, but I, I don't think I ever like actually had the chance to read through it. Um, but so I, I've always had like a passing interest in Spriggan, um, but I don't think it was until like the new Netflix anime got announced that I started hearing more and more good things about it. So I'm really excited about this. Seven Seas is going to be releasing this in four deluxe omnibus editions uh, that are going to be over 600 pages long, which is really, really cool. As far as what the series is about, uh, it takes place in the waning years of the Cold War era. National governments and parliamentary forces are in a race to uncover the relics of an ancient alien civilization that once ruled the Earth. Uh, the alien technology holds seemingly miraculous powers, but in the wrong hands, this power could spell disaster. Only the Arkham Corporation's elite special operatives, the Spriggan, have what it takes to stand up against an international rogues gallery of power-hungry cyborgs and gunmen who covet ultimate power. Um, so yeah, this this sounds really, really cool. Uh, honestly, m much cooler than like I probably originally thought. So yeah, I mean, just in general, I, I love it when Seven Seas like, you know, licenses classic bonga in general. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be picking this up. Mm-hmm. And then uh, next up, I want to highlight Kijin Gentosho um, from Moto'o Nakanishi and Yu Satomi. Uh, this will be coming out physically and digitally on January 2023, along with the first volume of the light novel series. That'll be coming out physically and digitally, I think, uh, a month earlier in December 2022, uh, in which in the Edo era, young Jinta and his sister must flee their home, finding refuge in a mountain village. Years later, Jinta has grown into a skilled swordsman soaring to protect the princess of the village shrine. Charged with slaying a demon that threatens the shrine, Jinta confronts the malevolent creature in the forest only to learn shocking truth. The demon speaks of events 170 years hence when Jinta must confront the demon in the future. Thus begins an epic fantasy journey that spans multiple eras as Jinta hunts a demon through time and must come to terms with his own dark nature. So, I mean, this is a series I really wanted to highlight because I'm a sucker for Edo area period pieces. I think that stuff is really interesting, especially interesting when you add time travel into that. Oh boy, yeah, I this is definitely up my alley and I definitely really want to check this out. And then the last title from Seven Seas is probably the title I'm like the most excited about because it's a title that um, I've read a bit of back in the day, um, but is you know, for the first time becoming available uh, with Yokohama Kaidashi Kiko or Yokohama Shopping Log from Hitoshi Ashinano. And uh, yeah, so this is going to be coming out in five omnibus volumes with the first one coming out this August. It is a series set hundreds of years in the future after an environmental catastrophe. Yokohama Kaidashi Ko centers on the simple life of Alpha, an android who runs a small coffee shop in coastal Japan. Alpha stands witness to chronicle the end of humanity's days with coffee, a slice of watermelon, and the sound of her moon guitar backed by distant seagulls. Quiet and bittersweet, this tale is about the melancholy beauty that can be found even as the end approaches. And yes, I, I think I read like the first three volumes of this, and I have to say, like, from what I've read, this is... 
this is a beautiful comic. Like it's 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 just so like feel good and like it's weirdly like relaxing despite like you know its setting and everything. Yeah, it's very much an Iyashike. It's very therapeutic. It's about finding the beauty in the apocalypse and in daily life that people as they go. Oh my god, yeah. Like the the I I immediately messaged Lum as soon as this was licensed and I told them we are covering <laughs> this on the show when it's all available because I, I desperately really want to read through and talk about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read the first uh, few volumes back in the day myself, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I mean, this is a title that has been well-beloved in manga circles for many, many years, and it's great to see a publisher finally take a chance on officially releasing this in English. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, only seven Cs, you know? Only seven Cs would pick up this many cool classic manga, and I really appreciate them for it. But yeah, that's basically about it for my list, Lum, if you want to talk about what licenses you're excited for. Absolutely. So, in addition to the big publishers, there are a few publishers that are newer or don't usually do manga as much that have licensed some interesting new books. The first of these is First Second Books. You know, they're a very established comics publisher, but now they're dipping their toes into publishing manga. Not just any manga. A manga by Hayao Miyazaki, the famous Ghibli director themselves. And this is a manga called Shona's Journey. It is the first time this manga has ever been localized and released officially in English. You know, it's a 40-year-old book by him. And it's going to be, you know, translated by actor Dr. Witt, who is like one of the main editors-in-chief over at uh, Cartoon Brew, which is like, wow. I, I mean, I really recognize his name. It's like, whoa, I've read his articles a lot on Cartoon Brew. So interesting, he's translating the book. But yeah, like... The basic premise of this is that it follows a prince called Shina who leaves his village in search of golden seeds to save his people from starvation and encounters two enslaved girls and Godman in his journey. So reading the synopsis, I mean, it really seems like, oh, this is a proto-Princess Mononoke-esque type work. You know, the same kind of uh, environmental themes of his other movies and stuff. So that's very, very intriguing. This is a work he, you know, had ran in anime age in like 1983. So finally, after four years, we're getting this published. And it's cool to have another manga by Miyazaki besides Nausicaa, of course, come out over here. And yeah, I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Is this before or after Nausicaa? This came out after the Nausicaa manga. Okay, okay. He started the Nausicaa manga a year prior. Mm, okay. So it's interesting he ended up working on this around the same time he was still working on Nausicaa because the Nausicaa manga ran until 94. Oh, wow. So interesting. He tried doing both at the same time. And Miyazaki, you know, in retrospect, he feels like, oh, I was not cut out for manga's crap. But he really was trying to publish and explore a lot of work and ideas of his in the comics back then. So it's very cool to see. I mean, yeah, from the synopsis again, like it really feels like I got super Mononoke vibes from this. So it'd be super cool to read this and see, huh, how many like ideas of this, how many like elements of this could we see in Miyazaki's later work? I'm very, very curious to identify that. Slight tangent real quick. Um, after hearing like, big, big shout out to Manga Splaining, by the way, if we haven't already, but like after hearing like what they think about the Nausicaa manga, it does actually make me more interested in like checking that out eventually. Really? You, and that's surprising considering they weren't in super enthusiastic besides Chris on the manga, since as they are rightfully in their right to point out, like he does approach the manga like more like kind of an animation storyboard, but also front loading a lot of text and detail in it rather than like, you know, super 
like adjusting to the comics format. Now, I really love the Matsuka manga because Miyazaki's art is really great. And because, of course, the story is very strong. But it was very interesting to listen to that episode and, you know, hear the rest of the crew not really enthusiastic about the book. And it's interesting that you became more interested hearing their discussion when they were actually quite clear. I think I was interested because, like, I have always seen, like, because, you know, I, I always see people like praise Miyazaki and obviously like that, that's well deserved. But I, I think I'm more interested because it's like it's the only time I've ever really heard people like be critical of his manga specifically. So I that made me more interested, I think, just on that alone. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. No, I can certainly see how that piqued your curiosity. But in nonetheless, you know, I find it very interesting that like kind of a, a minor manga work of Miyazaki's is finally being translated. And as someone who did really like the Nausicaa manga and likes Miyazaki's filmography and his body works in general, very cool to see another work of his be made available to us. Yeah, this is big. Now, another like very esteemed manga author who's getting another one of their books published from a smaller publisher is Yokoyami Uichi. Their newest book, Plaza, is being, of course, translated by Ryan Holmberg and it's being published through Living Line Books, which is a new comics publisher that just launched in November of last year. They are focusing more on kind of comics that are a little artistically ambitious and that definitely fits Yokoyama's work to a T because Yokoyama's manga are very distinct. They're definitely more like art piece manga. They're, I mean, he, they're, they've been dubbed neo manga because they're very much focused on exploring the comics form in non-traditional ways. I mean, he's, he does do comics that have like, you know, stories, traditional stories, but a lot of them are also just like exploring like shapes, exploring like environments. And it's not really about like traditional narratives as you would expect from more traditionally published mainstream manga. It really is like exploring the art of comics. I mean, what drew Yokoyama to comics is just the ability of the medium to explore time. You know, he comes from a fine artist background. And so what appeals to him about comics medium is that he can apply those fine art skills, but also, you know, explore themes of times through his artwork, which you can definitely squeeze through a lot of his work. So, you know, I'm very curious to see what type of book Pause will turn out to be. You know, will it be more in the, the Iceland direction or the color engineering direction? But according to Ryan Holmberg, like the book is inspired by Carnival in Brazil and Totalitarian parades around the warmongering world. So it's going to offer a maniacal extravagance, uh, marching, dancing, leaping, firing, cheering, smashing, and exploding over the course of 200 plus eye and ear drink of founding pages. It's going to, you know, be an oversized English edition. It's going to bring to life the hyper-animated satirographic arc of, of course, with the masters of avant-garde comics. And according to Matt Seneca of Comics Journal, they compare, like, you know, the action of comics is, of comics form, it's like a machine. Plaza is one of those doomsday devices Jack Kirby would devote full pages to, wrestling with dials, events, and gauges. And everything we see on the page is always in motion, constantly followed up by something else, just as dynamic. Yogyama represents the fine artist's ability to evoke a truly engrossing robot signage, which, yeah, you know, very much, this seems like an application of his work, and it's definitely intriguing to me. So Living the Line, they're an interesting new publisher that just came out, you know. I am curious to see like what other comics they're publishing on their imprint, whether they'll do even more manga. Like this is their only manga on their slate so far. But yeah, it seems like a good fit for them based on what their ethos is. And it looks like the book will be out before the end of the year. So very, very keen to check it out as I find Yoko Yama's work quite interesting. 
now we're getting to a bunch of titles from Seven Seas. Seven Seas had so many titles they announced last month. And again, can't even scratch the surface of them. It's very hard to pick and choose. But there were some that definitely stood out to me. Especially because there were a lot from authors whose work I had like a history with or an interest in. And starting off with one of those is a new work from Yu Ida, who was the author of Gunslinger Girl. And their new series is Die Even More Valiantly. This will be coming out starting October. It's a supernatural historical drama about, you know, the end of the Edo period. There's a former samurai who's kind of adrift in kind of the strange new times. And he has kind of a death wish because he feels out of place in times. But after an assassination gone wrong, he finds himself at the mercy of his intended witness bodyguard, who's intriguing young woman with the power to heal. And he's so treated by her that he decides that he wants to get living in order to learn more about her. But what is she going to ask in return for saving his life? So very interesting premise of kind of a man who feels left behind by the times and is kind of like interacting with a Japan who is changing from the Edo period to modernizing period. And so a lot of potential for exploration of that period in Japanese history and also just an intriguing like character study. And yeah, I'm very interested in like how the relationship between these two sets of characters is going to turn out and like how they'll complement each other and how that'll thematically fit in with the broader scope of the story. And Gunslinger Girl is a series I've tried all, multiple times to get into and feel like I just n- have not gotten past like the earliest parts every time, not for the lack of interest, but just somehow I just never ended up progressing much farther than my previous attempt. But I've always been interested. I've always found it like an interesting character study type work and I am definitely keen to check out another work by theirs especially one with a premise as intriguing as this now we also got a new work from Takahiro Rai who you know probably is most popularly known for to Gurgin of Jack and some of our Saturday Shaggy friends uh, for his Zero Tea Time spinoff of Detective Conan. But he also has done a lot of other manga too, in particular the Silk Du Freak manga adaptation. And this is another adaptation of his from a literary source. And that is, you know, an adaptation of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, the classic novel he in Seven Seas releasing his manga adaptation in four omnibus editions that'll be you know two volumes each per volume and the first book of these will ship out in December and the premise of Les Mirades, if you don't know is about Jean Valjean a starving man committing an act to conserve the rest of his life Cosette, a young over girl, Javert, a policeman, Marie, like a revolutionary for the working classes. You know, it's an ensemble piece of a lot of characters in a period of social upheaval and revolution in France. It's considered one of the greatest representations of West literature. Very popular play. And so, yeah, you know, this is really cool to see a manga adaptation, manga take of the classic novel from Arai, who is a really great artist. Done really great work. So, very, very keen to check this out. And there's also a new work from Ryosu Miyoshi that I'm looking forward to. A new work that plays into his love of monsters and monster human love and relationships. Arturus is line Human Six Monster Love. This is going to come out in Single Omnibus Volume in December. And yeah, it's like an anthology, a collection of stories about like love between, you know, the devourers and the devoured. Like mermaids, bird like human rescuers, like angels with no limbs you know a bunch of love stories between humans and monsters and yeah i mean i doubt this is going to be as like explicit as mad bk which is his other monster fucking manga <laughs> which is literally about monster fucking and also 
you know, takes like the idea of, you know, eating someone very literally in terms of like, it's not just sex with Mons Mills, you're eating them, you know, it goes to some very, you know, super uh, crazy places that not for the squeamish, not for the faint of heart, but it's very interesting, very well drawn. And of course, you know, Rusumi Yoshi is a very fantastic artist. We covered their Ashidaka manga, you know, that was coming out in early 2020. And that had a lot of artistic promise. And of course, they did the designs for animals and Golden Kongwe's anime. So they they were very skilled as an artist and especially in drawing like monsters and beasts and stuff. So very, very intrigued by this and see like kind of, you know, is it going to be as twisted as Maddie K? Is it going to be kind of a little more toned down? And nonetheless, I think we're going to get some very interesting stories of like, you know, monster human love relationships. Now we're moving on to some queer titles from Seven Seas. Started off with from another book from an author that I really like and can read more of their works, and that is Milka Morinaga. They have got a new book of theirs, My Cute Little Kitten. That's going to come out in December. It's about two girls who've been roommates since school and decide to rent a play together after graduation, and they live together for five years. But then one day, one of them adopts a kitten, even though their apartment doesn't allow pets, and they want to move somewhere to keep the kitten. And, you know, when she says that, the other girl ran out of amidst her feelings that she wants to be more than friends. And so now, you know, they are going to finally take their relationship to the next level from roommates to girlfriends. And they have a cat to take care of, too. A cute little cat to take care of, too. So that's a cute Yuri premise. And Morinong is, of course, you know, one of the queens of modern Yuri manga. I love, you know, Hana and Hina After School and Secret of the Princess and Gakun Belize. And, of course, Girlfriends is one of the more popular works of hers, uh, definitely, as a modern Yuri series. So, you know, I'm really keen to and excited for more Morinaga's works. And yeah, it seems like a great new series from her. Like a really cute little premise. And surprisingly, it's not like the only Yuri and Kitty premise that is Seven Seas licensed. Because they also licensed a book called Cat and Sugar Bowls, which is a Yuri anthology collection that's going to come out by the author Yukiko, physically and digitally in September. And it's basically about nine different stories about mean love and women like uh you know coincidentally enough another girl named rena in this story and then her uh girl called sane you know they're like a pair of naughty kitties who act forward as in they really are then another story is about a girl who's looking for a lover who will indulge in her more extreme bdsm fantasies and runs into a positive project club and so all these delights and more of eight and so yeah like it just sounds like a fun urinology that explores desire between people in really interesting ways and yeah, I'm keen to read this one as well. And then there is a big Yuri license. You know, if you like, you know, your slice of life, but you've been craving, you know, something more genre focused, you know, something more sci-fi speculative fiction-y. Well, you know, Seven Seas really delivered by licensing a work that people really like, uh, Quality of the Purple by Hizamitsu Ueo and Siro Jonan. Sima and yeah like the license both the light novel and the manga adaptation light novel is coming out in November the manga is coming out in a single omnibus volume in June 2023 and yeah it's like a romantic science fiction show where you're a cure it's about a girl through her eyes like everyone appears to be robots like she you know she has a talent that's both a blessing and a curse she's able to you know assist police in sizing her threats because her skill allows her to evaluate humans as quirks and physical capabilities like catalyzing parts of machine but you know the strange 
screen sight she has because it's the friendship of her peers. But she has one friend who she cares very deeply for, but she gets recruited to a secret organization. And, uh, you know, that's for sort of some real conflict because, you know, there's from there, there's like mystery, quantum experimentation, alternate universe, time travel, all sorts of, you know, crazy things as she gets motivated by her love to save her friend turned enemy and, you know, fails multiple different times until she finally figures out a solution and it goes to some very crazy places the way the story escalates in terms of like this universe hopping uh reset stuff so you know this is a really the title that you know has had a lot of buzz from a long time and i've been super intrigued by it for a long time uh, especially after wmr covered it on the show last year and i am super excited to see it get an official release in english finally and yeah for people who've been craving like more yuri story beyond the usual fare of like you know slice of life romances like this will definitely deliver you like some really like crazy sci-fi storytelling in addition to have being centered on a central relationship between these two girls and moving on from Yuri to Bial, my last Seven Seas title that I'm going to spotlight is Barbara Dez by Suta Suzuki, which is going to be kind of out starting January 2023. This is kind of a period piece, a historical setting. It's like set about a guy who's like a powerful figure in his nation, but he's in need of a bodyguard following a trip to his life. And so enter in a viscount named Adam Canning, who's a dashing blonde nobleman. The swears to use his common skills to protect his lord and woo anyone who catches his fancy while snailing at the Lord Montague's manor. And when he sees his nephew, Joel, Adam is like immediately spinning, but Joel is a very serious man and he's too busy rooting on crime corruption to fall for Adam's charms. But of course, that just makes Adam want it even more. So can Joel stay focused on his left ideas or he's going to fall for his devilishly handsome viscount? So kind of a pursuing story between this very dashing man killer let's say you know he's very very flirty and very appealing to a lot of people but there's this one guy who's just too serious and straight laced to really notice his crimes and that just makes this guy desirable all the more so it sounds like a fun little dynamic there a fun little setting and of course this comes from Suzuki, who is the writer of heaven's design team which i also really enjoy so I'm very, very excited uh, and keen to check this out. And yeah, I'm also curious to check out, you know, the other work Suzuki has published, uh, the other beautiful work, A Strange Image by Story, which is offered by Sublime. And speaking of Sublime, that brings us to the last new license I want to talk about. And that's Midnight Rain by CDK, which is about a guy who is kind of living a monotonous life, trying to pay off his crippling debt until the day where someone appears at his neighborhood laundromat looking worse for wear and both of these men both Ethan and the guy he meets Mike like they find themselves struggling to go on in different ways but it's these struggles that bring them together while simultaneously trying to tear them apart and so I've gathered that this is a very healing story about how struggles brings these two men together and through their relationship you know learn to trust each other they learn to accept things that have happened to them and they learn how to love again and this is a title that I've seen just a lot of excitement for particularly from mutuals who are like really into BL space and have familiarity with the title like Danny from Anime's List was saying like oh man like this is one that he never thought that they'd pick up but they're super excited for it like the art is super special in this someone tagged Hayden saying like oh this one this one's a 10 out of 10 so there's a lot of excitement for this one that really really intrigues me it sounds like it's really immaculate in terms of both the art and storytelling so I am super keen to pick this up and this is a one shot this is coming in December 2022 and yeah, like very much looking forward to it. 
And that does it for the new licenses I want to talk about. But I did just want to briefly mention that Hurahet, which we did mention before on a previously licensing roundup, going to officially be coming out on March 29th. This is, of course, Yuki Kamatani's series. And this is about a girl who, you know, after death of her friend, tries to commit suicide, but her attempt instead introduces her to a world full of gods and spirits and entities, a world she never could have dreamed of. So, you know, it's another story about dealing with someone, you know, dealing with some very heavy personal struggles, but then finding healing through community and through like working through their grief and feelings. So very powerful stuff. And of course, I'm a huge fan of Adrienza that's going to so keen to read more of Kamatani's work. We've got Shonen Odo to coming out this year, but I'm very glad that Hiroette is still coming out from Kadanch after being listed briefly in early January, but then immediately taken down and not knowing what's happening. But it is officially coming out on the 29th. But yeah, that's going to do it for my licensing list and our licensing spotlight for this time. And we're leaving a lot of books I mentioned once again because there were just so many new titles announced. But these were the ones that certainly piqued our fancy the most and we encourage you to keep an eye out for. Oh, yeah. Just way too many things to read, but it's it's, it's also a good problem to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, the manga industry is in a really good state in terms of like all sorts of new titles coming in and getting published. And I think that's been reflective of just how well the market is doing, which brings us to our industry news and our coverage of ICV2's latest report that the US manga industry has more than doubled in sales in 2021 compared to 2020. Like the NPD book scan tracked from retailers, how many units sold in those retailers, that 24.4 million units of manga were sold in 2021, which is about 15 million more units sold, a growth rate of over 160% over the previous year in 2020. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, according to ICB2, there is a bit of a clarification issue regarding MHA, where it's possible the actual number of units among us all for that series in particular may have been larger for both years. So that might affect like the comparative percentage, but still it goes to show the industry really exploded in sales in 2021. Like, and this has been corroborated by interviews ICV2 did with Kevin Hamrick, vice president of Viz, as well as Yen Presh, the publisher and editor-in-chief, Yuan Lee. Like, uh, they have been doing very well. They've seen a really big growth for them at their publishers last year. And manga is a huge part of book sales in general. Like, manga sales accounted for 25% of the overall growth of the book industry in the U.S. last year. That's being reflected in the space that manga has been given in book scores. Books and Million Bars and Overalls have been dedicating more space to manga, which you can see whenever you visit those stories. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's the, the demand for manga, of course, is just affecting the supply chain. And those issues are expected to continue through the rest of 2021. But nonetheless, like the demand is uh, all time high. Like after previously being an all time high in 2020, it's in another all time high in 2021 to an even greater degree. And there are a lot of like takeaways in terms of sales, like box sets and backlist manga figured heavily into it, like anime streaming like definitely had a mutual beneficial effect in terms of encouraging manga sales. This new peak that has happened has surpassed the previous record of sales from 2007. So manga is bigger than ever it has been. It really does seem like. And yeah, like this is incredible to hear that like so many publishers have had like kind of record sales. 
you know, Yen was saying like everything that there is like is basically selling in trench form. It's like really phenomenal. Now they saw a lot of growth in ebook sales. And, you know, supply chain has affected them, but, you know, trying to need their watching operations, they're hoping to improve it. Light novel sales has not increased on the same level, but they have grown. And we are seeing just a lot of big sales from, you know, all sorts of different types of titles, like a lot of really great variety. This is corroborated by Kevin Hamrick at Viz, you know, their take on like how Viz is doing. And yeah, like every channel of sales that Viz has been interacting with has shown growth. You know, like whether it be like library checkouts, whether it be like digital sales, like so much growth in, you know, interest in manga. And brick and mortar stores have stepped up better than online stores in terms of having book in stock. And yeah, like we're just seeing just more copies of books are being purchased. Like Backlist is driving their sales. Uh, everything is depending on what's in stock at the time, what's in inventory. And of course, that's something we're still cycling on and working to address. And oh, yeah, hopefully the supply chain issues are ironed out by 2023. Like printers are currently at capacity and they have to give estimates to printers, you know, for stuff like all the way through December, like far in advance. There just isn't enough paper for titles that are being printed overseas. Just getting a brick out to ship is an issue for them. So there's still trucking issues even for books that are being printed domestically. And yeah, so really manga has become like kind of entrenched as a mass market category and book type. From Kevin's perspective, they think that viewership of anime, you know, I think it's going to hold strong and that's going to translate into a lot of manga sales. So, you know, they expect that they could even be up from 2021. 2022 could be another big stale because like streaming trends are pretty stable right now that really you know has a beneficial effect on manga sales and of course you know we're seeing a lot of uh, great sales for all the series we mentioned before in like the top franchises list so you know as mentioned before demon slayer Jutsu kaisen now chainsaw man chainsaw man when that anime hits could even explode even more and yeah, like there are a lot of just promising signs for the industry. Like it's just doing incredibly well. But yeah, no, we're seeing like huge, huge sales in manga. Yeah, like just adult comic sales are just like really, really doing well. But manga in particular as a category, as a niche of those sales is doing extremely well. Like it saw 171.1% rise in manga sold from 2020. So that is really impressive. Yeah, that's that's wild to think about. Um, now, if only we can get better wages for the people who work on this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. With the success of manga in the marketplace, there is just no excuse to have wages stagnated and to not raise those wages for localization teams. They absolutely deserve it for basically having those books being able to be sold at all and readable at all in the marketplace. Without their work, these books cannot be put out there. And if these books are of low quality, they just would not sell like this. Publishers absolutely need to pay more respect and need to pay better their localization teams. But this is true of the Japanese comic market as well. The Japanese comic market has also grown, much like the American comic market. Sales last year were about 675.9 billion yen or about 5.9 billion US dollars in 2021, which is a 10.3% increase in sales from the previous year. And the proportion of manga in the overall publishing market accounted for 40.4%, which is the first time the number of manga sales, the proportion of it compared to the rest of the publishing market has exceeded 40%, which is quite remarkable. Manga is taking, if not just a smidgen more, like more of a market share. 
uh, in terms of overall publishing. And total digital sales for manga increased by 20.3% from previous year to account for 411.4 billion yen or about 3.6 billion US dollars, which is also the first time that number has exceeded 400 billion yen. And yeah, that just reflects an overall rise in the overall publishing market from 18.6% from 2020 to 2021, though the pit market has decreased slightly by 2.3% from the previous year. And magazine sales in 2021 reached 55.8 billion yen, or about 481 million US dollars, so a decrease of 11%. Digital sales also fell from 11 billion yen to 9.9 billion yen, or about 86.98 million US dollars. But the growth in digital comics to comics that have received uh, screen adaptations, you know, that's definitely helped it out. And also platforms have helped it, like Webtoon and Smarttoon. But digital manga numbers also don't include revenue from advertising to digital libraries, which also could tell a different part of the story in terms of how much sales or how much revenue publishers are getting from those sales uh, when you account for those. Though digital periodicals have fell a little bit, like 4.5%, print periodicals have fallen to a much greater degree, about 9.7%. And yeah, regularly published magazines fell about 7%, while MOOCs, like less regular ones, have fallen about 14%. And compiled manga book volume sales reached about 208.7 billion yen, or about 1.9 billion US dollars, so increased about 4.4 from the previous year, which is the third consecutive year of for overall manga sales. Jujutsu Kaisen and Tokyo Revengers were the primary uh, manga that have been cited as significant contributors to sales uh, following, you know, the big increase in 2020 thanks to Demon Slayer. And of course, like, increased sales have been attributed to COVID and the shutdown of, like, illegal manga websites. So, you know, more time for people to read manga and also, you know, less opportunity to just read them illicitly or illegally. And the public publishing market in Japan as a whole grew about 3.6% in 2021 to a total market value of 1.6742 trillion yen or 14.7 billion US dollars, which is a large chart thanks to digital revenues, though the print market shrank by 1.3%, but is the third overall consecutive year of growth for the market as a whole. So yeah, like a big, big success, big continued growth for the manga industry in Japan. So as, you know, the manga industry has continued to grow in Japan in sales, uh, that doesn't mean like piracy still is an issue and it isn't still costing sales. Because according to Asahi Shinbun, piracy cost creators and publishers 1 trillion yen worth of revenue in 2021, about $8.74 billion, which is more than the entire industry made in 2020. And it's like a 4.8-fold increase in manga piracy from 2020. Like, there are still 900 manga piracy sites still running in Japan, even though a lot have been shut down. And the 10 most successful received, like, 3.75 billion hits in 2021, which is two and a half times more than the number of hits in 2020. And of course, like, the biggest one of these was Mangamura, which was forced to be shuttered. But after it was shuttered, you know, we've had all these replacements come out over the years. And so we've seen more of an effort to have official legal manga sites, but there's still a lot of pirate sites proliferating that are really taking views and taking potential revenue away from publishers. And so as we've continued to see, you know, publishers are trying to address that through more persistent legal action. 
This includes like Japanese publishers doing Cloudflare for 460 million yen. Cloudflare, of course, the internet infrastructure hosting service that you know a lot of pirate sites are hosted through their service. So Japanese publishers' financial situation have gone after them specifically, saying like, "Hey, you are culpable in allowing these pirate sites to proliferate and hide their identity and collect revenue illegally hosting their work." And Cloudflare, you know, of course, is like trying to deny this to like kind of show the same well you know we're not responsible for what people who use our thing do but you know it seems like legal action is really being pursued pretty heavily by the publishers and it's going to be interesting to see how the lawsuit's going to turn out and whether like the suit against Cloudflare will prove successful and you know Shueisha released their own official statement about the lawsuit that you can read where they go over like their case and their argument for why they're pursuing legal action against Cloudflare and what they hope to achieve through this which is interesting because it's also shared by like the Viz Twitter account, though they didn't really provide much content for it. They just said <laughs> they released a tweet called Joasha made a statement. People were like, well, what, what, what's the statement about? <laughs> so I guess they were obligated to make that tweet, but they didn't do a good job describing the, the background. But it was, it's an interesting thing that they have this official press release about like, you know, the lawsuit they're filing against Cloudflare with the other publishers and like what they're trying to do. In terms of like, you know, trying to stop like transmissions of piracy to cloud for servers, uh, stop temporary caching of their servers in Japan and cancel and force Cloudflare to cancel their contracts with the operators and piracy sites that are clearly illegal. And of course, if, you know, uh, received like the monetary compensation. So yeah, like big moves on the part of the Japanese publishers to go after not just pirate sites, but also, you know, kind of the services that platform them. We'll see how that will affect like their ability to be even hosted. And what a bet that will happen in the industry at large. But of course, local efforts that are still being made to take down people who are posting pirated manga or even just like spoiling manga before it comes out. Because like, in early February, the Fukuoka Prefecture Police filed charges of copyright infringement against a company and a man in their 40s was employed theirs to maintain a spoiler site that posted nearly complete text from manga chapters without authorization. So, like, not even the manga themselves, but, like, transcripts of the manga uh, fell under, like, kind of copyright infringement and illegally posted content. I mean, these, the site, this company, they viewed the chapters in Chicago's one out. They laid out the story and text of screenshots from the manga, and then they made it available on their site. So, yeah, that's another example of, like, more legal action being, like, pursued against piracy sites, no matter the extent of the actual copyright infringement or the piracy, the form of it that they are displaying. Like, in this case, it's not, like, quite exactly, like, pirating the entirety of the chapter, but it's, like, they are providing transcripts of like the entirety of the chapter with select screen grabs so it's, it's interesting to see them going that far in that specific but to move on to the stories of piracy we do have to touch upon like an american court case involving some of the monk world and once again you know we brought him up before but uh, we have to follow up on Stefan Koza and the charges against him for possession of child pornography. This is the first update we've got on this story since last year, early last year. But it looks like that uh, they're finally officially like advancing eight felony charges against him. And each of the count is for you know possession of a different video of child pornography. 
uh, that he was in possession of. And the case first has gone through the Fairfax County General District Court and is now moving to the Fairfax County Circuit Court for the grand jury indictment. And a three-day jury trial is set for him on June 7th. And that's kind of where the situation is at. And the ANN press release actually really reveals some more information that I don't think we had covered before about the specifics of like what happened on the day he was arrested and what he tried to do in terms of like kind of trying to throw away the evidence, like literally removing computer parts from his computer and like trying to run out of his house into a wooded lot to truth them away before coming back to answer the door for the police. That shit's wild. Yeah, like how he expected them not to figure that out. So it's certainly wild, uh, certainly bizarre and, you know, very disgusting. Yeah, we've we've said it before, but fuck Stefan Koza, seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very disgusting. It's very infuriating and it's horrifying, you know. We, you know, we placed it, our trust in someone and, you know, they revealed themselves to be truly horrible. Like just, you know, to be in possession of just such horrible things, but also to be a repeat offender and have done it before and have hidden it from people. And it's just very, it really upsets me a lot. And yeah, uh, I'm sure that he will be convicted or at least I think, you know, there's so much evidence against him. He should be so. You know, we'll see if we get another follow-up when the trial happens in June. But this is another update that it looks like he's finally going to be going to jury trial. And there's going to be a sentence, you know, placed on him. But, you know, the case has been moving slowly. Like, he was, like, kind of released. He's been released all this time, I guess. Uh, You know, or at least he hasn't been, like, held. He just has not been able to have contact with minors or go on the internet. So, I don't know what's going to happen. But most likely... Hopefully, he will be convicted and arrested for his crimes against children. I can't imagine he won't, honestly. I would be so shocked if he wasn't. Yeah, I don't think he will be able to get out of this, you know, so hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. It's just very upsetting, again, because this is someone we interacted with and we had on our platform, and it is something... Again, like he betrayed the trust of us and so many people and he hurt children more. You know, he, he was preying on children more than anything, which is horrifying and distributing and possessing child pornography. So it's just disgusting. It just leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. No, it, it does. It, I don't want to keep repeating ourselves, but yeah, it's, it's just it's just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad he's getting hopefully getting convicted. I'm, I'm glad that he will be hopefully punished or it seems very likely he will be but you know every every time we have to talk about this it it just kind of like it feels like salt rubbed in the wound you know it just it really sucks to talk about and it really sucks to remember that we had him on our show at least twice so but you know we'll, we'll move on and thankfully hopefully justice will be served and that's all i that's all i can say yeah that's all we can hope for and hopefully it will be served yes so we're going to round off the show by going to talking about a few like interest pieces. Well, they're still industry related, actually. I mean, this is still actually more industry news, but non-manga specific. 
we're getting to more like anime industry news. And first is like, you know, we've talked about it before, but the anime industry is still pretty rife with sexism and that is still a persistent problem. And recently, anime studio White Fox, who you may know their work on ReZero and Akamega Kill and Steinsgate and series like that, uh, they issued an apology on their Twitter for allegedly engaging in gender discriminatory hiring processes, where they used to, on their recruitment page, advertise a production assistant position only open to women under the age of 26. And now the page states that the position is open to a person under the age of 30. But before, just as recently as three years ago, it was specifically, oh, we are only interested in women under the age of 26. So uh, the studio's representative director, Gaku Iwasa, personally wrote and explained that the company had advertised position this way since the company's suggestion. And I only recently learned the existence of the Equal Employment Opportunity Law, which is bizarre uh, and strange because the law was passed in Japan in 1972. <laughs> I don't know where they've been for 45 <laughs> years. Uh, and it seems kind of, you know, even beyond the laws, it seems kind of common sense that, yeah, you should offer equal employment opportunities for men and women. But that's some real, like, willful ignorance if I've ever seen it. Uh, yeah, you have to be, like, obstinately ignorant uh, <laughs> in order to not know about a law that has been in effect for decades at that point. And also, it's just it kind of a common sense. You should be doing this anyway kind of law. Uh, but yeah, so they've apologized for this and they're saying we're going to endeavor to improve the workplace environment while being open to learning about things else that come to so and so. Hopefully they do indeed grow for this and make it a more equitable environment. But I still feel like, hmm, well, your position only being open to people in the age of 30, that's still a little ageist, isn't it? Maybe you should not have any stipulations uh, about like gender or age or any of that, but whatnot, at least like, Hey, at least it's not sexist. Or like, Oh, this position is only open to young women, you know? So uh, hopefully we're seeing some improvement. We'll see some improvement on that front and at other studios as well. If they also have similarly bizarrely sexist practices in terms of their hiring. Yeesh. But in other studio news, Napa it seems to be branching out with a new CGI-focused studio that they're establishing in Osaka that's going to focus on, you know, the street CG background art photography, finishing anything in the sign parts of the pipeline. And they're establishing the studio in Osaka so creators and students who live in Kansai region don't have to, you know, leave their hometowns. You know, they can still work in their anime industry even if they, you know, live in that region. So it's kind of a cool philosophy that's like kind of a nice sentiment in terms of like why they're establishing it where they are so yeah i mean of course mappa has like grown as an operation just so much uh in the past decade with work on so many high profile titles that yeah i could see why they need another studio to focus on specific aspects of their pipeline so yeah interesting growth from mappa and nice to see that it's like open an area so that it opens themselves up to being able to recruit people you know outside of the tokyo area and like when a different region of japan now we're getting to kind of some of the big uh, studio news, you know, big like kind of licensor news, especially in terms of the anime world. So, I mean, we talked about Sony acquiring Crunchyroll and kind of like Funimation and Crunchyroll being kind of brand brothers once again. Well, now uh, they're fusing together. They're performing the fuse and then they're becoming all one the same. Except they're not going to become like Funny Roll or Crunchymation. They're just going to be Crunchyroll. So it's more like, like when Piccolo fused... <laughs> Uh, with Nail or Kami, you know, just one absorbs the other person, essentially. Like, Kami's inside of him, but he's, he's Piccolo. 
I mean, he's named Piccolo. Like, uh, th- clearly, though, Kami Piccolo, I think we had a conversation about this, but the, he becomes way more like Kami after Kami fuses with him. But, like, no, the, he's still called Piccolo, and that's kind of the idea here, is that Funimation and Crunchyroll are officially kind of fusing together as brands. Uh, Funimation, the brand name, is going to be phased out slowly over time, and it's all just going to be under the Crunchyroll brand umbrella. Like, everything that is currently on Funimation's app is going to migrate over to Crunchyroll, by the end of this month, by the end of March, like 80% of Funimation stuff should be on Crunchyroll. And then there'll probably be, still be some straggling stuff. But the goal, it seems, is to just have everything that's on Funimation gradually, you know, move over to Crunchyroll. And then Funimation, like as an independent app, will probably be phased out as a brand uh, identity is going to be phased out over time. Basically, they're just going all in on just Crunchyroll as a brand. It's a huge change of the times, really. Funimation is one of the major brands for so many decades since the mid-90s. And everyone, I'm sure, it's like memories of their logos or like, Funimation, you should be watching. Or like their new, like, super poppy logo. So it's kind of... really does feel a little surreal to see like, wow, this is one of the major names in the anime licensing game. And they effectively are going to be gone now and they're being absorbed into Crunchyroll, which is like a decade plus younger than them. But like, it's just grown as a brand to global recognizability much more to Funimation. So, you know, it's it's a huge shakeup for the industry. Uh, unfortunately, there were like news that has come out about like when this merger was finally happening late last year, like a lot of uh, localizers, uh, translators, that were working for funny kind of got left go or like waits for affected in an unfortunate way uh so hopefully though there'll be a petition to make sure that the actual rates to people working for the new crunchy roll team will be a much better level you know uh but yeah so it's it's gonna be interesting and i I wonder if there's gonna be any more turnover we see of like funimation staff being like go as the the companies like officially integrate like there are people who have been working for like dubs for funimation you're like not even realizing oh i'm i've been working for crunchyroll actually and now the show that i've been dubbing is gonna be on crunchyroll and not animation so like it's it's very interesting that i wonder just when the decision was made for the brands to fuse like this but yeah it's it's gonna be a big change to really have to deal with now to see like oh dragon ball z it's not a funimation show it's a crunchyroll show now which is gonna be weird like dragon ball z has never been on uh crunchyroll as an when as an official streaming service so that That'll be weird to see when it finally migrates over there. I, I said this on Twitter, um, but I, I really hope that when Dragon Ball Z eventually makes its way to Crunchyroll, I really hope the video for the Japanese version in particular will be better. Because apparently on Funimation, you can watch certain episodes of the Japanese version of Dragon Ball Z in their Dragon Box like footage, but it's only like some episodes. So they have it, they have it somewhere. They have it somewhere available, but Hopefully that'll be more consistent when that's eventually brought over. I mean, just in general, right? Like, we've said before that the consolidation of an entire industry is not good, but I I have to admit, I do kind of like having all my anime in one place because I've constantly bitched about this before. I've had so many issues with Crunchyroll or uh, Funimation's video player since like 2009. Like, I've never not had issues with it, and I've just gotten, I've just gotten so like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of used to like how buggy their stuff can be at this point, but it's still really annoying so i'm it like if i had to choose between the two of them to use like i would rather just use crunchyroll so like i think they went with the right decision and just sticking with crunchyroll overall but again like for for, for the consumer you know such as myself like th- this is very convenient but also i i do realize that again 
consolidation of an entire industry is not very good. So I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, we will certainly have to see like how this is going to pan out. But hopefully it works out for you know, the people working in the industry. For sure. I mean, yes. For consumers, like, you know, again, we're going to have like a lot of accessibility now on just one platform. But like for people working, hopefully, you know, this doesn't, you know, affect their rates and lower it or, you know, hopefully working conditions can improve. But yeah, we'll we'll see how this pans out for the industry uh, and how it affects it. There's no reason that people working for, I guess, technically Sony, they can't be paid more. Just saying. No, not at all. Not with how incredibly financially successful and profitable anime is. Like they could easily, or this, they usually deserve to be paid more. Mm-hmm. Moving on from like kind of anime industry news, we have like kind of two stray like manga related pieces of news to talk about that do fall more in the interest news category. And this includes like Jump Festa videos. You know, for the longest time, Jump Festa presentations have not been available officially streamable uh, in any capacity. You really have to go to Jump Festa to check them out. But uh, surprisingly, you know, on Jump's official YouTube channel, they are going to be streaming Jump Festa panels from last year uh, for about two weeks until about March 21st. And not only are they streaming these, they're going to have official English subtitles. Ooh. So if you've ever been interested in checking out Jump Festa panels, like you'll be able to have like a bunch of stage events from the convention on demand to just check out and watch. So if you want to see the Chainsaw Man or Dragon Ball Super or Bleach or Demon Slayer, or like all sorts of just of these Jump Festa panels, like this is your chance to stream them. And you got about well one week by the time you listen to this. So yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool that they're offering this. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Have a peek for us who've never been to Jump Festa to see like what kind of uh, panels and presentations they're actually like. And then the final piece of news that I wanted to bring up that I found interesting was that Suge Yoshiharu and Hiba Tetsuya have become the first mangaka to become members of the Elite Japan Art Academy. Uh, which is, you know, the art academy is kind of like just a kind of a prestigious type institution. They are have kind of like an old type of philosophy. So in some sense, like from Wright Holbert's perspective, that this move to induct mangaka seems to be kind of a move to uh, modernize and stuff or kind of like attract interest to their institution. But it's uh, pretty beneficial to the mangaka because the people who join the academy or members of the academy get like a yearly stipend of 2.5 million yen, 21k US dollars until their debt. So, you know, for especially old authors like Yoshiharu and Chiba, uh, Tetsuya, like that's pretty good deal. And, you know, the Ministry of Education for the Japan Art Academy, uh, you know, the reasons for inducting them into their new magnetization and becoming inaugural members of Mangaka for them is like, well, Suje, they say that his literary depictions offer glimpses of the absurdity of existence, experiences of alienation. His work has had a massive impact on young people who look to Mangaka's meaning and self-expression. And he has also received high praise from the world's art and literature, while the development of Manga Christian has been led forward by the interpretation of his work. And he's the epitome of high art within manga. He's a representative artist of Japan. And Suge's response to this was like, wow, I'm totally humbled. I never thought I'd be selected. I don't know anything about the Japan Art Academy. <laughs> I'm not sure I deserve it, but it happened, and I'm happy uh, to receive the honor. We'll also create a new manga edition, and I'm deeply honored to be among its members. I'm not sure yet what this means for the future of Bike turns, but I hope that it has a positive impact in the world of manga. 
Yeah, like, again, Holmberg's perspective is someone who has, like, studied, who's an art historian has studied, like, post-war art is, like, well, the Japan Art Academy is kind of, like, a, an institution that for a long time, like, kind of celebrated orthodoxy, uh, what is quintessentially Japanese, but is, like, kind of anti-modern. And so, like, that's kind of, you know, when he switched to studying manga, he never really encountered the Academy's name, except in, ironically, Suge's own writing, where he, in passing, had mentioned once. But, yeah, like... Holmberg is like skeptical and not super impressed, but it seems pretty cool again that, you know, the Academy has opened itself up to include mangaka among his ranks and especially for acclaimed artists like these, you know, they get not only this accolade, but also they get like pensions that are, that, you know, help them as they continue in the requirement, you know. And in 1985, that's what Suge kind of complained about. He seems to not remember the present where it's like, he said he, oh, I'm jealous of fine artists with their order of culture, medals, and pensions with the art academy because the only thing an aging cartoonist can count on is usual social security. I can't wait. So, hey, you know, it worked out. He ended up being one of the first inductees as far as Mangaka goes. And Ron Holmberg was skeptical of like Chiba's inclusion, but you know, I think he has an incredibly impressive body of work that is super culturally impactful and influential. So I think it's totally, I think he's totally deserves to be awarded with this honor. Though I do agree that they should also award it to Motohagio and others uh, as well, who have both been trailblazers in the manga world. I mean, Chiba in particular, I mean, look, it's, it's not like he created a manga that was so influential that, uh, you know, it wasn't referenced in literally everything ever made afterwards, you know, just saying. Probably deserves it. <laughs> uh, also makes me think that, um, hey, maybe, I mean, m- maybe they are and I just don't know it, but um, maybe a publisher out there should look into finally licensing Ashino Joe. Just just a, just a suggestion. You know, I, I would have, you know, I'm sure some of us would appreciate that. I would love to read Ashino Joe in English finally, officially. Yeah, we should definitely get Joe and a lot of Chiba's other works in English. Like, it's a lot of really great manga he drew over the years. Oh, yeah. But yeah, cool to see Yoshihara Suge also acknowledged here as, like, one of these inductee members. You know, he's kind of like a... He's not, like, a popular artist necessarily. Like, he's, like, an occult figure artist. You know, he's often compared to, like, Robert Crumb in terms of, like, his reputation, in terms of, like, his mm. influence in the manga world. You know, just to draw comparisons to someone in the comics industry. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like underground alt comics, you know, geeky gub comics, like he does some really great stuff and track mark and symbol. So yeah, really cool to see him be inducted and acknowledged, as well as Chiba, who is probably a more, you know, recognizable household name for us, like Holmberg mentioned, you know, because he is the creator of Shit and Joe and stuff. But yeah, that'll be about it for the news we'll cover on this episode because we've run a little long, but we have a lot of anime-related news that we'll be mentioning on our next episode when we hope to cover the latest simulpubs that came out from variety publishers, especially Jump and Comic Key in the last month. So for any like anime update news, check back in on that episode for that stuff. But we will close out the show with some community shout-outs. And most recently in the news was the new Batman film, which I did go see on opening night. And I was up with a little bit mixed feelings with, like a lot of things I really enjoyed. But the things that I really didn't know how to feel about, I really wasn't super a fan of. It had to do with some of the, the political messages in the movie or like how they kind of fell apart in the movie. I'm not going to spoil it, but the movie makes a big hullabaloo. It seems to make an attempt at critiquing institutions and institutional corruption and how trustworthy 
institutions should be and how much faith we should put in them. But then it kind of doubles down on like, no, it's just a few bad apples uh, that are causing problems. And uh, yes. These institutions <laughs> are, you know, are good and we should work within them, uh, not really, really challenging the legitimacy of these things like the, how the structures have been set up and whether they actually are effective to begin with. So I think the Michael and Us podcast, which I don't remember if I mentioned them before, Michael and Us is a podcast I really enjoy that examines media and the politics are explored and expressed from a left uh, perspective, uh, though they are very critical of kind of modern liberalism and a lot of like kind of half-hearted attempts of like, you know, exploring or uh, trying to explore social change. And they had like a good exploration of the politics of the new Batman movie that kind of hit upon a lot of my feelings about why I ended up walking away unsatisfied with what the movie was trying to do. Because like the Nolan trilogy, it is a movie that is trying to be in the moment and like commenting on like current events, like the current feeling of the culture of the times in terms of like modern political unrest and anxieties and trying to find a message about how Batman fits in and navigates in between that, what Batman as a character he represents or fits into that. And, you know, there are some... In Batman, in Bruce Wayne's personal character in the movie, I think there are some suggestions, but in terms of the overall you know, critiques the movie has or like the way it plays with like in the news ideas of like, you know, critiquing political corruption and the corruption in the police or playing with the ideas of like extremist groups and stuff like that. It kind of falls apart a little bit. And I think they did a good job kind of exploring the movie from that angle. But if you just want like a review of the movie, like, hey, is this a enjoyable Batman movie just on an entertainment level? Dan Merle did a great review uh, on the film as well that just focuses like on, you know, how enjoyable the film was also on, a, on the character level and the performances of it, which are all very strong. Also, Dan Merle also did just a great video just ranking like every Batman film pretty much. Uh, like animated and live action like all 44 different Batman movies he just ranked and gave his reviews on and it was a great video just like to hear his thoughts on you know I was sad to see that you know he wasn't a fan of the Batman meets Scooby-Doo film the Brave and the Bold (laughs) Batman meets Scooby-Doo and I was also surprised that like it's not like low low but Return of the Joker uh, was actually quite lower than I thought it would be uh, so there's some surprises there, but like I really uh, thought that he did a good job like, describing his feelings in the film and giving reviews of them. Like he liked more of them than he didn't. And also, I was very happy to see how high up Long Halloween was on his list as one of my favorite movies of last year, one of my favorite Batman storylines, just in general from the comics. So very, very happy to see that. I was just like waiting for the whole video. I was like, okay, I, I kind of get a sense of like what the top three is going to be. But like, I wonder how if Long Halloween is going to make it in the top ten, how high up it's going to be. So I was very happy of its placement. So yeah. Definitely check out Dan's reviews of the new Batman film and like his ranking video of every Batman movie. And if you just want like just a, a kind of a general a video about like Batman's history, like Comatros did a really great video recently about how Batman, you know, Silver Age comics, like how they came about, like the kind of storytelling that there was in them and the bizarre places they took the character and how like Batman was really not that popular in the Silver Age and almost the series almost got canceled. And so it's a really interesting look at like an interesting turning point for Batman's history as a character 
And, you know, at a point of kind of crisis for the character, too, and for the comics of like where whatever is going to continue. So it's really interesting to go back and look at, hey, this is a time period where Batman was kind of struggling in popularity. And it's just crazy to be here now where there's like 20 different Batman books being published all at once. So, you know, that's very, very fun. Can I mention one Batman related thing while we're still on the subject real quick? Because uh, Totally Not Mark actually did a whole video series reviewing every live action Batman movie up to the release release of the new Robert Pattinson Batman. And I thought those videos were really, really cool, Um, especially as someone who, you know, because he he also did like a series on like the Spider-Man movies, which I'm like way more familiar with. But uh, a Batman, I've I've seen a lot of them, but not like every one of them. So like, oh, interesting. Did you watch the Nolan trilogy at least? I've seen the Nolan trilogy. It's just it's just been a long time since I've seen him in full. So uh, it was just really interesting to like see his thoughts on all those movies. And uh, especially when he covered like the more modern DC movies, which uh, I'm really not a fan of. But he, he still had some like interesting thoughts and like more positive things to say about those movies, which... Uh, as, as someone who doesn't like those movies, I really appreciated those. Like, Mark is Mark is really good about, like, because he did this with the Spider-Man movies, too. Uh, he's really good about, like, you know, taking movies that are, like, usually, like, almost universally hated and, like, finding, like, positive things to say about them. Because uh, he also did the same thing with, uh, with the Amazing Spider-Man movies, which, you know, I, I appreciate it when a reviewer can do that kind of thing. So... D- definitely go watch those videos as well. And just just watch Totally Not Mark's videos in general, because like I, I always love his stuff. Yeah. And in addition to that video of Totally Not Mark, AJ also had released on the same time. You know, AJ is Mark's editor. He is a huge Batman fan. So he like, you know, in preparing Mark to make that video, the video series, like he had made like kind of a primer of like, hey, here are like the essential Batman storylines. Here's an intro to Batman, the Bat family. Here are like the comics you should read to get a sense and understanding the character. And that's a really great recommendation list too. If you're interested in learning about, hey, here are like the essential comics, like the essential storylines to define Batman as a character and give you a sense of like what defines Batman, how the character is grown and like what movies in particular draw from. So certainly, yeah, definitely uh, that'll be another shout out to check out if you want a recommendation list of like here are some of the like the essential Batman storylines in the comics mm. to read. Okay, I'm glad you're shouting those out because I did see that going around and I meant to like go back and look for it, but I, I just didn't get the chance to. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's going to be in, in the list of these shout outs because I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking that out soon. Mm-hmm. And moving on from Batman to back to manga. So I mean, we talked about how much the manga industry has grown, but definitely... You know, we uh, have to think about to the history and it's just kind of impressive, like how much it's grown. And Manga Planet is now publishing a new kind of like history of manga North America series that is being written by Huey Narada, who is the former executive vice president of Viz, was with the company for like 26 years. And he's basically describing like his observations of being the manga industry from the time that he entered it. You know, he first started working for Viz in 96, all the way up until, you know, now. And his observations are like coming from the Japanese manga world like he used to be like an editor at big comic spirits before he moved over and started working at viz and like he remarked like wow like manga was so much more expensive than the japanese comics uh and like the sales volumes that were considered successful were so much lower like ranma was considered a success selling like ten thousand copies when like in japan a best-selling manga you know was like you know, they were taught to aim for a million copies. So it's just completely different scale. And so it's a very interesting new history series that I'm keen to continue to follow on. And definitely if you want, you know, a great perspective on the history of like publishing in North America, like 
you know, you, it's great to have it from someone who has been in the industry for as long and with as much experience as you at Narita. So definitely check that out. And we also talked about, you know, Red Hood uh, getting a print release from Viz. And that inspired Land of Excursion, George Horvat, to write a profile of short-lived jump manga that he believes deserve English print releases, going all the way back to the magazine's history from like the 60s, 70s era, all the way up to now, highlighting some really particularly interesting and important short-lived series that are nonetheless like important historically for Shonen Jump and for manga as a media as a whole that, you know, should be licensed. It should be published and being made available to read officially and in print in particular. And I thought it was like a really interesting collection. And of course, I always am impressed by George's knowledge of the history of Shonen Jump and like his awareness of like these older, more obscure titles. And so this is a great primer, some like really uh, underrated, under the radar, historically important series, as well as, well, you know, some titles that you'll recognize as like, hey, these are titles from like pretty acclaimed mangaka that it's kind of strange that we have not gotten now. You know, like stuff like Karkuri's Oshi Atsuri Sakon or Level E or Kajika and Butsuzo and stuff like stuff from acclaimed authors that don't have name recognition on you know, manga readers, but like these early works of theirs or these short these of theirs have never been licensed. So yeah, it's a great profile of that. Also kind of recent to the news is that, you know, Sailor Moon just celebrated its 30th anniversary and anniversary of the anime. And Anime Feminist recently published a great piece exploring fashion femininity in Sailor Moon, particularly in the 90s series, how the fashion, the different outfits of the Sailor Senshi, you know, they really reflected, you know, their personalities, their tastes, and they weren't all homogenous. They weren't all the same, even though the girls are, you know, have their own colored themes, obviously, in their, you know, Sailor outfits, like their actual fashion outfits in civilian wear like they're all so unique and their wardrobe was really refreshing and showed different you know expressions of what can femininity can look like whereas you know contrasted with Sailor Moon Crystal everything is a lot more homogenous in terms of like outfit choices characters are much more directly color coded there's a lot more kind of gender pigeonholing of like characters have to have feminine looks even Haruka who is defined by like kind of her more androgyny and you know being more of a butch character so even she and Crystal has to have more feminine look and then yeah even male characters in the old Sailor Moon like they could have like more flashy outfits colorful outfits that show different expressions of masculinity too but in the newer series like they dress a lot more plainly particularly Mamoru who's like always pretty much in white and black which is a lot more boring so that was a really good and interesting piece exploring kind of like the fashion of Sailor Moon which has often been celebrated it's been often celebrated you know that oh man Sailor Moon characters just had so much drift and style but like this is a good piece of like hey this is like really reflective of the characters in the original series it was really a lot that defined them and was a huge part of the series overall messaging about like the diversity of femininity and what it means to be just like a girl and express yourself just as an individual whereas like the new crystal series has kind of totally lost that tread and has just made a lot more boring choices in that guard and then kind of related to, you know, Magical Girl series, there was also a great piece published on NFM about the metamorphosis of the Magical Girl genre that was written by Nina Morales. And this was a piece that kind of explored the trend of kind of the dark Magical Girl genre that is more aimed towards adult male audiences that are focused more on like kind of exploitative violence and shock horror, which kind of gets away from what Magical Girl as a as a genre, which magical girl stories used to have dark elements. Like Sailor Moon has dark elements and character design and stuff, but the context is completely different. Like a lot of the older series that are focused more towards young females, they focus more on stories of like 
Grote and how this reflects like a character's personal story. Right? Whereas a lot of modern magical series that play with dark teens that are aimed towards more adult nuances are just, yeah, they're more warrioristic. They're more exploitative. And it's kind of an unsatisfying thing for long time magical girl fans. But there are examples of modern series that do explore dark themes like Flight Flappers or Wonder Egg up until the ending, at least, that explore dark elements and themes in a story that is more character focused and more focused on you know cathartic messages and so i think that's a really interesting delineation and exploration of like kind of the emerging trend in magical girl series to have more adult dark works but then still we're seeing kind of more iterations of that where the genre you know still is producing examples that have you know a little more writers a little more close to its roots in a sense and that's appreciable. And that there are can be like modern works that play with dark ideas, but are also still focused on like kind of the themes that the genre was kind of, you know, built on and what made it so meaningful for a lot of, uh, especially young women growing up, which I think is very valuable. And kind of also related to stuff we were talking about in this episode, you know, we mentioned Yokohama Shopping Line being licensed and Tor had a great article on the series and what makes it such a great comfort. Like even though the series focuses on, you know, a post-apocalyptic world, that the focus of the series is very much more on the beauty of daily life, the beauty of this modern world and landscapes. Like even if it's a world that is much less populated by people, like it still focuses on just kind of the beauty and the comforts of daily life. And that makes it stand out in a really refreshing way compared to other post-alocalypse series it's not about you know wallowing in the sadness of the world that has been lost but it's just kind of about people just surviving and just people you know just appreciating that the world they're living in and just the day or day to day and i think that's very uh, appreciable and that's a really cool perspective and it's a great read to, to just like give you a sense of like hey you know i've heard about this series but i don't really know too much more about it. I think this is like a good, like non-spoiler kind of exploration and primer of like, hey, this is what makes the series like so appealing. And this is what makes it stand out so well. So yeah, I definitely would recommend giving that a read. If you've been curious about your comic showership, don't know that much about it, it's about this is a really good pitch for it. And there's so many more pieces that I could mention. I think I'm going to close off with just one more video that I want to shout out that just truly is one of the best video essays that I've seen for ever. Like just, it's just a phenomenal piece of work. And that's Pawson Select's videos on the franchise's narrative and particularly his most recent video on Japan as a platform superpower. This has been a two-part series. Uh, the franchise's narrative one came out a couple months ago and that's mainly focused on kind of this idea of like, you know, how franchises have kind of evolved in our understanding uh, and how like franchises through the multimedia aspect can create narratives. Like not just through like one particular medium, but the entirety of the franchise through the media mix that was kind of a theory form formulated by Mark Steinberg, who he also interviews and has conversations with in the video about this idea, like how that forms the understanding of a series and the storytelling of a series and the consumer and the fans relationship to the series. And not just using Harley's and Susan as an example of like a series that really utilized the media mix in particular to kind of create this kind of sense of like a world surrounding the characters through the franchise uh, in really interesting ways and psychological ways, like just the fact that the the covers of the series would focus just on a single character against a blank white background, making you kind of realize like, oh, this is a story that's 
completely based around this character and the world surrounding this character. But also exploring the series MPD Psycho, which also is like an interesting series that uses multimedia to explore different forms of storytelling and create like a huge scope to its world that I just found very, very intriguing. And that's just all the franchise and narrative video. And then the Japan, the platform superpower video is just focusing on the rise of platforms and how platforms affect our understanding and the way we engage with media, particularly, you know, as platforms have changed uh, as we adopt platforms like, you know, YouTube or, you know, Twitter and all these different forms in which we engage with media and how that affects our relationship to media. And it's interesting, they use Bakuman as an example as kind of a conservative view of like the role of platforms in media because Bakuman, of course, the huge storyline was the Nanamine arc where like Nanamine was like having collaborative manga uh, being written up through a chat room and right and like that was seeing like oh that is a wrong way to make manga that is an impure way to create content but that's actually very far removed from like how a lot of stories are created how like there is a much more interaction between author community and the work they're putting out uh, particularly in shots that's and like a lot of light novels that are being published on uh, various platforms in japan they are so community driven and developed through community influence involvement and that really affects the the media that's going out and affects the relationship that you know, readers and consumers have to the medium. And it's very interesting because the video also goes into kind of Japan's own history of platforms, like long before uh, the rise of like the iTunes or the Apple Store, like Japan had like kind of their own like model of mobile internet, their own form of mobile uh, community and app sharing and stuff like that. But and that, of course, has been kind of given way to the rise of like, you know, Apple and, and Samsung and all those like phones and mediums uh, and stuff. But it's, it's an interesting thing that Japan is kind of on the cutting edge of like the, the mobile shift, the shift to like media being presented on mobile platforms and on the Internet. And then it's interesting to examine like how media and how our engagement with mobile platforms is being seen through work that is coming out uh, and our relationship to that and how that is being explored. But also it does have given a warning sense of like this idea of like platform imperialism, like kind of the drawbacks and kind of the dangers of like having so much of the global platforms that people rely on being based in just a few private companies. What does it mean for like a Japanese uh, publisher to have to rely on like American platforms like iTunes and Google to host their content and be at the winds of that, uh, particularly Amazon. What does it mean for international publishers to have to rely on like a private company based in the US and for those companies to have so much power over what content gets disseminated and distributed? So the video just explores a lot of really interesting perspectives and interesting ways in which our reliance and our use of platforms, our reliance and use of the internet and apps, how that affects kind of the way we engage and understand the media, the way that media gets promoted and distributed, and how that is just evolving the art and how that's affecting the art. And so it's just a fascinating uh, video that shows like how platforms 
have assisted and complemented also are in conflict with the rise of manga anime as entertainment, as media in the last couple of decades. And it's just a really incredible piece of with USA uh, scholarship. Uh, the editing pause and select just puts in views is just phenomenal. The stuff he does with cutouts in the video, like just printing out like manga pages and cutting it out and just doing like puppetry with them. Just the various forms of different techniques he has in terms of his visual story telling in terms of his editing is just phenomenal it just goes above and beyond his production i mean absolutely i wanted to make sure to mention that on this episode and yeah it's just incredible i'm incredibly impressed consistently by his video essays and the work he's like one of the best video editors in the game and one of the best like video essays in the game this is just incredible piece of work but yeah i mean there's just so many other great like video essays and so many other great like articles and pieces that have come out recently but you know we've already run long wanted to make sure to highlight these specific ones as they're relevant to stuff we talked about on this episode and definitely for sure look forward to more community shout outs that i am keen to mention and bring up in future discussions but for now i think we will wrap up the show and we'll leave you with a promise with more to look forward to yeah, just like we mentioned earlier, our next episode coming up after this should be our next Cyberpubs episode. Uh, like we also mentioned, uh, we definitely have some new Jump series to talk about, as well as some comic key titles and just so much more. We also mentioned there were just some news pieces we just didn't really have time for this episode, so we'll, we'll catch up on those next time. But yeah, definitely look forward to our next Cyberpubs episode. I'm definitely looking forward to reading all these new series that we're going to have to talk about next time, especially the ones that have come out of Shonen Jump. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about those in particular. But uh, until then, we're going to go ahead and end the show by plugging all of our stuff and let you know where you can find us. Uh, starting with my good friend Lum, how can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumrinasha on Twitter at Lumrinasha or I do places like Anish Revelation and Alice Reuters at Lumrinasha. That's you can find me. You still read my reviews among others at Comic. Get a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out. So look forward to more in there. As well as you can find the other podcast I do, Lum Squad, the URC Outstar Focus podcast I do with my good friend Andrew A.C. Yoshimura, where we explore and talk about the wonderful and wacky world of Ruko Takashi's classic comedy manga, URC Outstar. We're having a lot of fun, cover the manga as new ones get published by Viz Media. And we're looking forward to covering more of the anime now that the movies are available on streaming, on Crunchyroll, as well as on Blu-ray from Discotheque. And with the new anime on the horizon, we have just so much to talk about. We're so excited. So much Yurisei plans we have. So look forward to more episodes of Lum Squad on uh, MongoMerics.com. And also, you can follow us on Twitter at Squad. And we're on every podcast platform you can think of, as well as YouTube. So, and we're also on the Manga Arts feed as well. So, when new episodes drop, you can look for them there as well. And if you like the art that I do, the illustrations that I make for the show, and the illustrations and animations I make in general, you can find those on Instagram at SidArtworks. All right. But as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts outside of Manga Mavericks that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, you can click on the podcast page and uh, basically check out all my other stuff that uh, I won't go over all of here because I will take up too much time. Um, but suffice to say, you can basically check out anything I'm doing at the moment, uh, any other podcast projects I'm not involved in anymore, or even, you know, all my guest spots and other shows I've done over the past few years. So I, I try to keep that page as up to date as possible. So if you're interested in literally any of my other podcasts or anything I'm doing, you can find links to all those and more at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. 
Uh, but as for Manga Mavericks in particular, you can listen to every episode of Manga Mavericks at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you will have the chance to listen to select episodes of the podcast before we put them up on our main feed. Basically, uh, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast uh, ready before it's supposed to go out on the main feed, we'll put it up there first. Um, admittedly, that basically depends on our schedules and whatever we have done at any given moment uh, so if you want more reliable content you should really sign up for a five dollar tier we're over there we upload at least one bonus podcast at the end of every month our latest bonus podcast is actually us going over the results of our latest manga mavericks podcast survey uh, I mean, first off, if you took the survey, thank you so much for taking the time and, uh, you know, giving us uh, some very valuable feedback, which we do go over in our survey results podcast. We put that up this year on our Patreon to kind of make room for stuff uh, on the main feed. But, you know, actually, also that podcast in particular, you don't even have to be a part of the $5 tier. You could sign up for as low as a dollar and you could still listen to it because uh, we still wanted to make that podcast as available as possible, not put that on too high of a paywall. But yeah, basically, if you're interested in whatever feedback we got, if you're interested in uh, how many people listen to our podcast, where, what some of our listeners' favorite guests were, what some of our guest favorite episodes were, you know, stuff like that, you really want to go listen to that podcast. And yeah, basically, just listen to all the other bonus podcasts we've uploaded over the years since we've started our Patreon, again, at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, it's really the best place for you guys to support us. It really helps us keeps the lights on in terms of our, you know, podcast hosting and website hosting. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we need uh, we need help on repairs for some of our equipment. And that really comes in handy. So, uh, you know what? Again, thank you guys so much for supporting us on Patreon. Uh, and yeah, once again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks, but that's enough about that. Uh, as for everything else, um, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at manga mavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks for, you know, different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Um, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the news we covered this episode? Um, what licenses are you looking forward to? Is there anything you're reading that you want us to talk about on the show, maybe? Uh, you know, email us anything about manga, the podcast, or email us about anything. We'll, we'll read it on the podcast. We love getting emails from you guys. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, review us on Apple Podcasts, or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a lot of different platforms at this point. Um, but especially on Apple Podcasts and even Spotify, you know, if you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys, positive or negative, because uh, we want to use that to make the show that much better. But yeah, that's going to be about it for this episode of the podcast. Uh, this has been episode 192 of the Manga Mavericks podcast, and we'll see you guys next time for episode 193. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.